Hi, I'm Andrew Sheps, and welcome to Double Digits. This is episode 10 of Andrew Talks to Awesome People. This week's awesome person is Rich Costi. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody, it's Andrew, and I'm talking to awesome people because it's Monday, and today's awesome person is Rich Costi. Hey, Rich. Hello. How are Hi, you? Andrew. Good. Good. Really, really good to see you. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, so let's start with your hat. This hat, this is uh, Barbara Bester, uh, architecture firm based out of Silver Lake. I'm a big fan of her work and um, worked with her in the past. Hope to work with her again in the future. She's amazing. That is awesome. I didn't know architects had swag. <laughs> he does. She's, she's a particularly uh, awesome uh, architect. Right. Well, <laughs> you got to be. Does she tour? And that's amazing. Uh, <laughs> so, I think she does tour. Yeah, she does. Probably. So no, does she know. do does she do studio stuff or house stuff? Um, she mostly does house stuff. Uh, she did Silvertop. Do you know that house? Luke Wood's house. I met her through Luke Wood, who's the president of Beats. I knew Luke since back when you met him when he was working at Geffen. Yeah. Um, and uh, she's done. She does a lot of music business houses. She does like she's worked with some of the Beastie Boys and her her aesthetic is like highly functional, not crazy expensive and has a good vibe to it. And it feels fresh. Right. That, Great. How I would sum it up. If she sees this, she'd probably smack me because I said something I shouldn't. But um, <laughs> No, or she'll get at least two people who want a hat. <laughs> right. Can't afford her services, but want a hat. Exactly. <laughs> so um, normally we do these things in sort of chronological order-ish because it's just the easiest way to talk about stuff and that way you don't leave out everything. Though, of course, we leave out tons and tons and tons of things. But I love hearing about how people got into stuff because like we were talking to John Leckie last week. He didn't even really know the studio thing existed and then he started working at Abbey Road and a year later he's producing records. Like he went from nothing to producing in a year. Yeah, which is insane. That. And he skipped yeah. the entire hierarchy of going through the the cutting room and the tape library and like, no, he was just in the control room, whatever. Um, most people seem to have had a little bit of like either they had a family member who worked in a studio or something like that, or they just got into something similar. And I know you were DJing at 16, according to the internet. So yes. Yeah. So I'm just curious, was that like, did you were you always interested in audio for some reason or did you kind of get into it in a in a specific way i think probably like like a lot of us i developed at a young age a severe addiction and reliance upon music um to the degree that when i was in elementary school i didn't want to go outside i just wanted to sit at my desk and listen to music you know um, the same cassette over and over again, whatever it was at the time. And, uh, and as I got older, I started, like, I remember at one point, um, you know, you've, you've, the diff music that you listen to gets filtered through your family members, your friends or whatever. Um, and then at some point, what happened? I was listening to the Talking Heads Remain in Light album a lot. And someone had left a cassette of My Life in the Bush of Ghosts on the cafeteria lunch table. And I... <laughs> Picked it up and I saw Brian Eno's name on it, and I saw his name on the my, on the uh, Remain in Light album, and I started to see that they were b both said produced by, and I was starting to wonder what that meant. Um, and I think that's when I first started to think, you know, oh, it's like kind of like being a conductor, but in the studio, um, and that got me really interested. So probably 
from, from the time I was like maybe 14, I just wanted to be in the studio all the time. That's funny, because my first sort of like, oh, hey, what's a producer was Fear of Music, where on the back it's black <laughs> artwork and all it says is produced by Brian Eno. And like, right. I think I want to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I grew up in a pretty isolated place. I mean, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Vermont and there was no internet then. We didn't have cable until I was, I don't know, midpoint, mid-teens. And so you would only get these little bits of information about stuff. It wasn't like I could run to the store and pick up a recording magazine or something. Like so that. how did you find out that like record making existed as a thing and get interested to the point where you decided to go to Berkeley and study it? Because there's obviously, there's got to be a little bit of a learning curve to know it's there. I mean, you, you would just, you know, read guitar magazines. You could get those, for example, and you'd read about how what people were because I played guitar and you learned sort of the process there and you'd learn about them and you just get whatever information you can. I mean, I remember at one point um, there was a video of the making of the unforgettable fire. It was like a half hour video of them in some in Slane castle. Yeah. Yeah. I must watch that a thousand times um, because it was footage of a band that I was into making a pretty at the time weird album. Yeah. Um, Brian, Eno, uh, yeah. and um, Kevin Killen. And Kevin Killen, we, we both know, and just trying to figure out, you know, I'm watching all these clips of them, and I had no idea what anything was that they were using, and uh, which is completely different now because the veil is removed from yes. the studio prop for everyone. Um, and yeah, I just want that's all I wanted to do, and so that's what I pursued. I mean, even I was in a band, we did well regionally in Vermont for whatever that means, and then uh, and then went to uh, Berkeley and studied music production. Started working at a place called Q Division in Boston. Um, Boston at the time was kind of bifurcated. There were basically two main cool studios, I guess you'd say. There was Ford Apache that did much cooler stuff. And there was Q Division, which did the sort of more less cool pop stuff. I mean, not really pop because it was like Amy Mann right. um, versus like the Lemonheads, you know. Um, and uh, But that's where I met John Bryan and I worked with him a lot there. Just I was kind of like whatever, an intern kind of doing some engineering. And then I was also hustling like a lot of indie bands at the time. So and I, that was while you were at school or this was after? That started while I was in school. Um, and then it continued after... Um, and then eventually moved to New York and started working at like kind of hip hop studios. And I was still producing like indie records. Um, and around that time, uh, through a friend, I got a job at working for Philip Glass. Yeah, definitely want to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, and so I was there for like, I don't know, two or three years. And that was a huge uh, experience for me, you know, for on a lot of levels. I mean, I was very much an intellectual listener of music and an intellectual consumer of music, which kind of went against the grain of what was popular in the mid nineties, I would argue. Um, and, uh, and working for Phil, like fed that completely. Um, and also it was an SSL studio and it wasn't super busy outside of his own projects. And I had keys and alarm codes. So I would just go in on weekends and just try things out. Right. And I, that's where I really was able to woodshed a lot of things and figure a lot of workflow out um, because there was no time limit on me trying, I'm having access to that kind of stuff. It was amazing. That's incredible. So, I mean, cause he's obviously an incredibly influential composer 
and does lots of sound design in his orchestrations. But unless I'm wrong, which I'm wrong a lot, he didn't do a huge amount of electronics or processing of sound within the compositions, uh, or maybe for smaller pieces he did. But I'm curious if there was a lot of that and if you spent time sort of sound designing with him, or is it really just dealing with recordings of musicians playing the music? Well, it's an interesting... Yeah, that's an interesting observation because he, Phil is just a composer. He gets up, he has a very strict schedule. He wakes up in the morning. I think, I can't remember, it's like maybe it's from 10 to one or from nine to noon. And he writes with a pen or a pencil on composition paper. He has a piano next to him, never uses it. And he just writes for three hours every day, no matter what's going on. He feels that like that kind of regimen is extremely important as a writer. Um, and so he would write usually for some kind of group, but his, it was his conductor and to some degree his producer that were always trying to do the new shit. They wanted to cut, knowingly cut against the grain of traditional classical music. So we would say we would record the Philip Glass ensemble, or maybe they would be, they would add some more players so that have like say 18 or 19 string players crammed into this little New York studio. And then once we would have all those parts, um, we would, add uh, sampled strings and um, synthesizers on top of everything that was going on. And it was, it would all be played. Um, there wasn't a lot, there was no quantizing right. going on. So it was always a kind of a wild mix of things. You know, at one point there was a, he got contracted to do an opera for La Scala in Milan, the La Scala Opera Company, and they wanted him to like write an opera for them. And he wouldn't do it unless he was able to use pre-recorded music because he didn't want it to feel too traditional. Um, and so he got them to agree to install a sound system for the first time in a 400-year-old opera building. Wow. Um, in quadraphonic to do this opera. And I did, I like recorded and mixed the whole thing in quadraphonic. And it was insane because Back then, it was hard. We, we were using Pro Tools. We were one of the earliest people probably in, in New York to be using Pro Tools, but it was complicated because we still had analog tape machines and we had Pro Tools. And then we had, I was running synthesizers at the same time and trying to mix this thing in quadraphonic. So every time I hit play, you'd have to wait for all this shit to start rolling again. Yeah. And, uh, and it was taking forever. And at one point, like the producer was in there and uh, he was seeing how long it was taking to do the, mix this like two and a half hour opera. And his wife goes, geez, guys, what would you do with that simply time code? And the producer goes, we would have been done weeks ago. <laughs> that was a really good uh, to face kind of thing, you know? Yeah, you would have been on a single tape machine and that's that. <laughs> yeah, we would have just figured it out. Um, but so but because it, that, that was when like, I learned to do a lot of programming and stuff because I didn't grow up in an environment where I had access to those things. Right. Right. So, but that layering you're saying was coming from the producer and the conductor as much as it was from Phil or? Yeah. Phil would just come in and hang out for a bit. He really was just the, co the composer and everyone else would just take it. And, but he, they had worked with him since like 1974. Right. Right. And so that was the process. Do. Yeah. And they still do. So the idea is they never want to do something that sounds traditional. They always kind of want to do something fresh. And there's some sound design going on, but it's not like, it's not, uh, Hans Zimmer or something like that. You know, it's all in the service of what he composed. Right, right. It's orchestration, really. Yeah. Right. But you're still doing records while working there, or was that pretty full on? I mean, I know yeah, you say no, you had lots of time, but... Yeah, no, I was still, like, uh, producing indie bands and, uh, and working on a handful of other... I always had other stuff going on. 
Um, and there was an interesting crew of people rolling in through that place at that time. I mean, Bowie would be around a lot. You would see like different members of the Velvet Underground walking through or um, it, it was, you know, uh, Phil's crew is an odd bunch. <laughs> you know? um, and uh, so that was like a real, uh, it was a great learning experience. And then at some point I just felt like I had enough in New York and I moved out to L.A. Right. Okay. So let's go back to Boston for a second, though, because you you sort of glossed over that you worked with John Bryan a bunch up there. But let's talk because John Bryan becomes very important once you get to L.A. as well. But I'd just like to hear a little bit like what was he was he based in Boston at that point and what was he doing? Um, right. Yeah. What was going on there? He was uh, for people who don't know who John is. He's um, uh, kind of a. I don't know how to describe him. He's a kind of a, he's a brilliant musician, but he's a lot more than that. He's like kind of an iconic character at this point um, who uh, became known for doing, first he was playing on people's sessions because he's such an incredible musician and hook generator. And then he started producing records and now he's doing a lot of more soundtrack work and he's done soundtracks to, you know, a lot of really important films. Um, back then he, he, was discovered by one of the owners of Q Division. He was he was doing um, his kind of shtick, his like live shtick where he plays, takes requests from the audience and writes yeah, songs. Yeah. He was doing that at a small bar in Hamden, Connecticut. So he was already doing that. This is what, early 90s? Yeah, yeah. This is like, I think this was late 80s. This is before I was involved in Q Division. Wow. He was doing that. And one and one of the guys at Q Division had gone to Yale and was out at a bar and saw John there and uh, and said, hey, you should come. We're, you know, we used to have a studio in Boston. So John went up there and he actually was in a band briefly called The World's Fair uh, with a couple, with Mike Deneen and a few other people from, from that sort of Q Division camp. And then eventually John started meeting different people and he ended up... Um, uh, writing a lot of songs with Amy Mann, who had just left Till Tuesday and was starting to get her own career off the ground. And when I was around, we were working on some of Amy's stuff. It ended up being on her album called Whatever, which was her first solo album. It's a album. great record. Yeah, it's great. And and But at the time, John was also just working a lot of his own music. Um, and uh, he would play every instrument. He would come in and we'd sit and read the paper for like, maybe order some food and we'd just hang out, wouldn't do anything. And then all of a sudden he'd go in the live room and start playing drums and he'd say, or maybe he'd play the, whatever, he'd start on some instrument and say, okay, mic up the drums and you mic up the drums and he would just be singing and then just go through and then at the end of the night he'd have a song finished. Um, and, uh, and that ended up being his first solo album, which didn't come out for like 15 years. After wow. That. You know? um, after like he reworked everything a hundred times. That's amazing because I'm, I'm curious then, and I don't. You, if you don't know about this, we'll just skip over because I don't know. Did you work with him at all on the Grays? No, uh, that was when I was living in New York when that happened. Oh, okay, so he'd gone out to L.A. and started that. I'm just curious, like how he went from I'm going to play absolutely everything because I can, and he's better than yeah. almost everybody at every instrument, to saying yes. I'm going to be in a band. Like that was well, that was actually a really tricky thing for him. You know, I'd imagine. Uh, I, I know that myself as a, as a musician, like I remember just being in the studio a couple of late nights and watching him play guitar. And I was like, there's no point in me doing this anymore. You know, <laughs> what am I doing here? This is like, there's no point. Um, and uh, what, he had met Jason Faulkner. Jason Faulkner is another person who can play every instrument. Um, and Buddy Judge, who was in the Grays, came yeah. from Boston. He was part of the same crew. And Buddy had his own band called uh, the Buddy System, I think it was. Um, and... 
so they all sort of came together and they had this idea that maybe they'd give a try as a sort of like some kind of like pop aesthetic super group or something like that, you know? Right. And I think from the moment that it started, they didn't get along. <laughs> Perfect. You know? Like all, they never got along at all the entire time. But still managed to make a great record. So. <laughs> and this, I, they told me so many stories about, because Jack Puig produced that album. And yeah. I think John, they spent something like three days just auditioning Mike Priest before they started recording. Right. Right. That was these kind of things that just don't happen anymore. It is, you know? it is kind of like the bookend project to Jellyfish, isn't it, in a way? It's yes. <laughs> yeah, because Jellyfish had hired him to play guitar on, on uh, the previous album. Um, and then they asked him to join the band. I think I was in the, in the room when he took the phone call for them. They asked him to join the <laughs> band, and he was like, nah, that's okay. He wasn't <laughs> No, thanks. <laughs> like, really? All right. Like, well, we'll we'll come back to John once we get you to L.A. But I want I do want to stick around on the East Coast a little bit um, because you worked on some amazing stuff in was it Michael Deming's studio in Hartford or did he just do lots of stuff there or I couldn't quite unravel this pretty well researched interview here. This is some interesting stuff. Well, um, well, it's because <laughs> it, among other things, it's the Lilies, which is one of the weirdest bands ever. I mean, you know, the list of personnel in the Lilies over the years is about 500 people with one consistent person. But they've also, um, uh, oh, something, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's something with nothing in the title. One of the Lilies albums is one of my favorite things ever. I love it so much, I can't remember the name of it. But <laughs> Um, so I'm just curious, I'd love to hear a little bit about what was going through that, because that was obviously a completely different scene to a larger city, larger scene. It, was, it seemed like a real kind of underground collective thing going on there. I mean, well, that I had met, um, there was a label called Spin Art in New York at that time, and they had, uh, I can't remember who their biggest act was at the time. I think it was a band called Lotion, which probably no one has heard of anymore. No, um, I'm Missed that and, one. Uh, <laughs> it's it's like, a terrible uh, name for a band, though. <laughs> it, it is a, they had a minute of like that sort of when there's like a hype band in New York and everybody within a 10 block radius talks about them all the time for like eight months. It was right. kind of like that. Um, and so I started, uh, I hooked up with those guys and started doing some some records for them. And, uh, and the Lilies is one of their bands. And because I'd worked with Swirlies, who were kind of in the same camp, um, uh, I, they, you know, I met with Kurt, who's the main guy from Lily's, and we just uh, decided to do the record. I can't remember how we came upon that studio. I think Kurt knew about that studio. It was this really weird place. It was in an old uh, Colt 45 factory in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. Gun or beer? Uh, gun. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and um, um, which is why it was called Studio 45. Uh-huh. And. Um, and it was just, it was, you know, the studio sounded pretty good. They had um, a Toft console, which those things actually sound pretty good. Um, and the live room was good. And it was just a weird place. I think we all slept there because nobody had any money. And uh, and that was an album where, you know, Kurt just let me do whatever I wanted. And so, like, I'm, it's become kind of a weird post-rock uh, um, I don't know, it's, it's an album that people still talk about, I guess. And I had like a, a small sampler rig and a couple of synthesizers and we just basically made kind of a weird album and I would sample the drums and use the drum loop and with an 808 for like the beat for the direct because I mostly was listening to hip-hop music um, right so like even though I'm doing this indie band I'm always trying to do that kind of stuff and nothing's really changed um, in that department and Kurt wrote a bunch of cool uh, songs and it's just it's a super weird trippy album but it's 
it, it left some kind of w weird mark in that world. You know, we did the whole thing in like two and a half weeks or something like that. Right. That's great. Okay. So one more thing. Well, no, it probably a couple more things on the East Coast, though. I'm a huge Bill Laswell nerd. So mm -hmm. I'd really love to hear about Golden Palominos because I've never been able to meet the guy. I've never spoken to him. He doesn't interview yeah. much, but he's around. So I'd love to hear about that. Well, it's interesting. I'm a Laswell nerd also. And um, when I was going to college in Berkeley, we had to do like a report on some producer, each, everyone in this music production class. And everyone did people like, uh, you know, Quincy Jones. There was a bunch of people doing that. And like, I can't remember who else. And George Martin, I'm sure. Yeah. George Martin, and I, and you had to pick like three things that the producer had done in that year, or not, or any year, and um, so I picked Bill Laswell, and the three things that he had done in the span of those eighteen months or whatever was Motorhead, Laurie uh, Anderson, and I can't remember what the third thing was that I that I picked that he did, um, but yeah, I mean he's like just su such an out brilliant musician, and I was assisting at a studio called Campo which was a weird little place. I remember Campo. Like a G series. Um, and Bill came in to produce, uh, um, what's the guy's name? Oh my God, I'm totally spacing out. Um, this is a huge uh, artist, like a visual artist. Um, who's the guy who like breaks the plates? Uh, Julian Schnabel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Julian Schnabel, who's now a super famous film director, as well as being an artist, made a solo album. <laughs> uh, the Vanity Project, and he hired Bill Laswell to produce it. And Bill came in with Oz Fritz, who's like an amazing engineer. He's worked with Tom Waits and all these other people. And uh, and I assisted on it for a couple of weeks. And he had Ornette Coleman come in. Wow. And, and saxophone. And it was all kinds of weird people like that hanging around. And to me, I was such a Bill fan that like him just hanging around him was like was an incredible experience, you know. And then of course I like hit him up to see what was going on at his studio. And um, so he hooked me up with uh, Anton Fear, who's in the Golden Palominos. And then I would go out to, uh, where was it? It was in Greenpoint, back before Greenpoint was gentrified. Right. Um, it was basically one big, huge open room with a really old Neve and every guitar pedal you could ever imagine and some other weird shit laying around. Um, and so I worked there for a while and worked with Anton. And Anton Fear um, from the Golden Palominos is a really amazing drummer. Uh, extremely dark personality and pretty difficult to get along with. Um, so I lasted a little while, but it didn't go on that long. Right. Well, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> but I, you know, I got to work at Bill's studio for a while. That was enough for me. Right. All right. Because <laughs> yeah, he's if, if for people watching this stuff so far, I think if you don't know the people we're talking about, there are going to be tons of names that are going to come up. But the two that are important are John Bryan, J O N B R I O N, and Bill Laswell. That between the two of them, that's 600 records and film scores. You're set for the next eight months. Just go through the catalog. And all of, all of the work that each of them have done is worth listening to. Yeah, yeah. Everything. Yeah. It's a so rare. musical and in totally different ways. Yeah. Totally yeah. different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think like Bill Laswell's sort of reworking of um, the Miles record in a silent way is better than the original in a way like i think you know because while miles was doing that everyone around him like did they even know what the hell he was trying to do and bill's had 20 years to digest it and then got a hold of the tapes and it's it's amazing absolutely amazing he's so, definitely the one guy you could trust to do that you know yeah Maybe Robert do 
Yeah. And his ability to put different people in a room and make them play together and have it be awesome yeah. is pretty great. So another one that I had no idea you'd worked on, it may turn out like, oh yeah, I was only there for a day, but Aphex Twin. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, he was, that was when I was working for Philip Glass and um, we were sitting in the control room one day and Phil's, the, the person who does almost all of the work on Phil's records is his conductor, Michael Riesman. They all, every record says produced by Kurt Munkasey. Kurt mostly sits in an office and orders rugs. And then he'll like walk in for like five minutes and then leave again. Um, we're familiar with that kind of thing. Yeah, but, a, lot um, of, a lot of producers <laughs> work that <yeah>. way. <laughs> uh, but um, so I was in there one day and we we're working on something. And then Phil was in there and Kurt comes in and he goes, so Phil, there's this guy named uh, Richard James. He goes by the name Aphex Twin. And I immediately kind of like perked up. Um, and no one in the room had ever heard of him. And uh, and he, he, you know, he he sent a cassette of something with a note, and the note said, "Hey Phil, let's do something." And it was <laughs> it was a cassette of Richard doing this, you know, semi-classical sort of sounding piece of music. And uh, and Phil was like, "Well, who is he?" And Kurt, this is almost verbatim what he said: "He's a he's a kid who builds his own synthesizers and goofs off on them all day." That's what he said. <laughs> It's like, okay. Um, and so Phil, like, for whatever reason, agreed to do it. And so then we took Richard's cassette and put it on a DAT. And Michael Reason, the conductor who has perfect pitch, sat and listened to it and would cycle different sections and just wrote it out on a score paper without touching a keyboard. And then uh, we recorded, like, then we had a string. We did, like, the basically Phil did his version of the piece of music. And then he added in, like, some French horns and shit, like he always does. And so Richard came in for the day that we were recording the strings, like a day or two. And uh, that was a trip. He was like the young guy. He'd never been into a proper studio ever in his life. Wow. He, he was sitting here going like, he couldn't believe like the chairs were, were you could turn the chair and it had wheels to go around the room. <laughs> like these things were, were really freaking him out. Um, but he was, he was quite nice, you know. Um, and uh, that was a cool thing to be a part of, you know. He ended up using it as a... B-side or he put it out on a album called he put it out an EP and then it went out on another thing called like 23 mixes for cash or something like that. Right. But one thing he did do that came about as a part of that relationship that everyone should check out. During that time period Phil was doing uh classical versions of a lot of Bowie albums. Uh he did the whole trilogy of Low Heroes and Lodger and I worked on the Heroes. We recorded the whole thing um the, uh, the classical version of it, Richard took the ver and when we recorded that, the song Heroes itself, I couldn't hear how what Phil did was, it had anything to do with the song Hero. It just sounded like one of 500 Philip Glass pieces we were recording at the time that all kind of sounded the same. <laughs> so then Richard got, he, he took the multi-track and then got the vocal from David, the original Heroes vocal, and put it on top of it and like really fucked with David's vocal. And when I heard it, it just like sent chills up my back. Cause then I realized a, how brilliant Phil was. Cause he had actually done heroes. Wow. And then, um, and then what Richard did on top of it, it turned it into this like scary kind of nightmarish, uh, song. It turned it, the meaning of it right on top of its head. Wow. Um, I will definitely I, look for that. I've never, didn't even know that existed. I don't know if it's been released. You can find it on YouTube and it's incredible. It's like, wow. it's, really, it's a, yeah, uh, yeah, I think the, the thing that's surprising to me, because I've never got that into Aphex Twin, but when you do, you like, he's so musically talented, it's kind of scary 
yeah. to just like sit in a room and build synthesizers and mess around them all day, but do that. Yeah. <laughs> there was an album he put out about four years ago where it's all robots. He built all these like real mechanical robots at his house and they all play everything. <laughs> uh, and it's worth listening to because it's basically, it sounds like uh, acoustic instruments playing Aphex Twin music. Wow. But, but they're all doing things that you can't do. Like there's one uh, little snippet where it's just like a snare roll and it's, it, it's, it's kind of terrifying because it's a super, no person could play that, you know? That's <laughs> um, why I put it on there, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's amazing piece. I can't remember what that, that EP Wow, I, I got to do some major Aphex Twin <laughs> listening now. So, um, okay, so you moved to the West Coast. Was that for a project or was this just, I've had enough of New York, time to move on? Yeah, I just had enough of New York, time to move on. Yeah, no project. So nothing in particular. And did you have stuff or was this just a, let's hope this works? Uh, there was, I mean, you always have things that are going on. So you just sort of move them over there and then a bit of let's hope this works, you know? Right. Um, and then, uh, and I was doing like just odds and ends, a few, you know, a few different productions here and there. And then um, I had done some stuff in New York, but when you come out to LA, no one really cares what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> know what your experience was like but um and then i reconnected with john brian and he had just gotten a pro tools rig and didn't know how to use it and at that time this is like 98 maybe um la was still pretty tape based uh, from what i could see and because of all the experience i'd had at working for phil of new gear doing things that other people couldn't do with it um that gave me an advantage and so then when i helped set up John's thing at his house. We sort of, I hadn't seen him in a few years. We, we, uh, you know, um, struck up a good thing. And then the first thing we did together was he had, uh, as a Fiona Apple song, he did, she covered across the universe for a, for a movie called Pleasantville. And he had already done some of that. And I went down in the studio and synced up the pro tools and, you know, finished recording and mixed the song with him. And we loved the way that turned out. So then it was time to start her second album. And I, he just, you know, I just did it with him. Um, same thing. I was like a, a co-engineering, co-mixing kind of situation. Cause John's really a gear nut. Right. Um, and doesn't really have any limits to his interests in the studio. Right. So, well, you got to talk a little bit more about that record. Cause obviously, first of all, it was huge for your career, but it's a huge record in a lot of listeners lives and in Fiona's career and, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a really pivotal record in so many ways. I mean, it was, a, as has happened many times for me, it was another example of you go in and you do whatever you want with no oversight whatsoever. Um, and you just make something that everyone in the room is excited about. I mean, her label never heard it before it was handed in. Right. And her manager didn't hear anything until we were mixing. Nobody heard any demos. Nobody came in went over the arrangement, nobody, we literally just, and she had a big budget because her first album was, was really successful. And John hired a core group of some of the best players and um, we just took our time with it. You know, she had a bunch of demos. He never changed her song structure, I don't think, on anything. She would basically play piano and sing and then we would take that and start building on top of it. Right. Um, it was really, uh, every day it wasn't like we would work on any particular song any given day we would just come in and hang out and then see what we we're interested in doing and then that's what we would do 
um, there wasn't a whole lot of structure to the thing. It went on for a long time. It was like 10 months, I think. And was that at John's studio or were you parked somewhere? Oh yeah, no, we started at Ocean Way and then we were in the other building, which is now East West for a yeah. bit. We were in Ocean Way Studio B, which is now United. Yeah, uh, That room is amazing. We had the best time there, as everyone does who works in that room. And then we were at NRG for a long time. Right. Um, and, and then we we're at John's house. And then uh, while we we're at NRG, I managed to sneak in mixing uh, the Jurassic 5 quality control <laughs> album, which I really loved. That's awesome. Um, but uh, And then we did a lot of vocals up at John's house and some other weird stuff. And then we mixed, I can't remember. We, I think we've hit most of the studios in town that right. didn't need at the time. <laughs> and did her original piano and vocals survive like that was it? Or did that usually end up getting replaced along the way? The, the vocals, none of the vocals are original to the piano performance. She would do the piano uh, separately. Um, right. And on some of the songs, like I would just record the piano with her to a click track and then I would just edit it all together. And we had tape machines rolling with Pro Tools at the same time. And most of the time, the bulk of stuff was getting recorded on the tape. And then I would do, a lot of times the piano would be on Pro Tools because there'd be a bit of editing going on. Um, uh, there was only one song where the drums are recorded digitally and it's the first song on the album, um, on The Bound, which I still think I'm pretty happy with how that sounded, that, that track. Um, but, uh, and mixing was pretty hard, you know? John and I were sort of co-mixing, and that, I don't know if anyone else has ever done that, but it's kind of hard to do, because I would start it, and I would get something together that I liked, and then John would come in, and he wouldn't like what I would have done, or a lot of times he would have an aesthetic idea about a piece of gear. Like, no VCA compressors were allowed. John wouldn't use them. He okay. had some kind of thing against VCA compressors. Um, so he would ask the assistant, who was my roommate at the time, Greg Collins, who's a successful producer yeah. himself, um, what I had connected, and he would find out, and then he would undo everything that I had done. And so the first song was, that we mixed was On the Bound. It took a week to get that song together. <laughs> and eventually I started like hiding things under the console. I would like put a DBX 160 on the snare drum, and I would like hide it so he didn't know that I was using it. <laughs> and what and console was it? Well, we started off mixing at, at United Studio B, so it was that Delcon. Right, okay. So I think probably the first third of the record got mixed there, and we took too long and ran out of time, so then that's usually why we would change studios, because <laughs> we would take one at a time, and then we'd see who else is available. Um, and uh, visitor here. Oh, nice. Yeah, my two are, I don't know, the weather's too good. They're out killing things. but It's really good when the cat walks in the console and changes your routing. But anyway... Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, yeah, we spent about a week mixing that first song, and um, and uh, I can't remember what my point was. It just went on for yeah, a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just asking. I'm just curious if you ever ended up on a console with VCAs, because, you know, then what are you going to do? Oh, yeah, no. Of course that would never happen. Are you kidding me? No. You'd never be on a console with VCAs. Um, that was that kind of stuff's not allowed. Well, I mean, it's it's a remarkable sounding record. I mean, obviously the music is is incredible. The arrangements, it's a lot of really interesting new stuff. But it's a great sounding record too. It it. Thanks. I'll uh, say one other notable thing about that record is that we only mixed on NS10s. We never listened to anything else until it was being mastered. Really? So, so you didn't even check stuff like that was it? No, no. And, and it was only tracked on NS10s. We never heard 
And I mean, occasionally at, at NRG, they have those huge Dyn audios. Yeah. And we would occasionally enjoy ourselves on those because those are super fun to listen to. Right. But uh, otherwise, no. Only and I guess NSA. if you're working on the record constantly, you don't have to take rough mixes home because you're never home. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would probably listen. I don't think we listen to rough mixes. I don't remember. Um, but no, we basically just took as long as we want and did whatever we wanted, you know? Yeah. And most of the time, that's, you know, that has a better than 50% chance of being good, I would argue. Yeah, as long as people, because some people get lost in that, you know, they want limitations and choices made for them. And so it takes a real talent to be able to navigate in the open sea, I think. But well, we certainly got lost all the time. And what would happen is Fiona would come in and she'd be like, what's going on with this track? What happened to this thing I liked and this thing I liked? And then we would kind of look at each other and go, okay. And then we'd rein it back in. <laughs> <laughs> So um, when the adults showed up. <laughs> yes, that's pretty much what happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that was a great experience. And then on the back of that is, is when uh, Lindsay calls, calls my apartment, literally out of the blue. Lindsay Chase, who was Rick's, uh, Rick Rubin's production coordinator. Yes. And then uh, she was like, Rick would like to meet with you. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So, then, so that was Rick heard the record and said, I want the guy who did that. Yeah, it was that simple. How did you end up working for Rick? Oh God, I got asked to tune vocals a couple of times and couldn't do it, which was good. And then I think the first gig I ever did for him was uh, the first Saul Williams record. They had nice. programmed all the drums on an MPC 60 and just put them on tape in stereo, wild. And then Russ Elevato was mixing and they wanted the drums split up. And like, well, how come, where's the, you know, where are the individual tracks? Like, well, there aren't any, and it wasn't locked to anything. So, and I was the geek that could lock a freewheeling MPC back up to analog tape after the fact. So, so I did that. And having some technical knowledge opened the door. Oh, absolutely. That's yeah. all my doors were opened by being a total geek. And like, I could yeah. synchronize anything to anything. So, Interesting. well, so, all right. And that's where we met for people who don't. Yeah. I mean, and, and not, not too far along that journey. So was the first thing you did Renegades of Funk, was that the first Rick project or was there something before that? There were two before that. I mixed this band called Palo Alto. Did you oh, right. Yeah. Schiffman recorded that and I ended up mixing that over at uh, uh, the village. I'm just trying to think because, oh, maybe, oh, you know what it was the, was it the next Palo Alto record that Jim Scott mixed or was the one before you? Anyway, whatever. Cause I remember I was working on something at Rick's house while a Palo Alto record was getting mixed and it was when you had to keep coming back and forth to the house and, <laughs> and listening to stuff. Right. So Palo Alto and then. Palo Alto. And that, that was in two thousand in the summer of 2000. And I remember that because right in the middle of that was the democratic national convention here in town. And I had known that, you know, they were, he was working with Rage over at the other studio and Jim was recording that stuff. And um, uh, then they did, the, they did two nights at Grand Olympic Auditorium, which was at the time, that was the end of the band. Well, we didn't know it at the time, but they recorded those, those two uh, shows. And then Rick had me, Jim was supposed to mix them, but Jim at the time would always go on vacation to Hawaii every August. Right. So, and he didn't cancel his vacation. So then I got the job to mix the Rage album, the live album. Um, the idea at the time was to do a live album with a few covers. Um, and so, uh, I like got all the multi tracks, edited all the shows together. This was kind of interesting cause I had met those guys at this point and I edited all the takes together. Rick wasn't really that involved with that record. I think it's okay to say that. Um, but this is just a live thing. Uh, 
And so I edited it all together, but because it was a live show and they're all jumping around and Tom's guitar is going out of tune, I was like, we might need to patch in a couple things. You know, I'm not saying it's still a live performance, but like he lets his guitar go in an important part. I just need to like splice in maybe a little tiny moment. Um, but it was hard to know which moment, you know, those were going to be uh, unless I started to go granular. So I'm like, well, the easiest thing is just to get uh, Timmy and Tom down and just play the show down. And then I, they'll play it all the way down to the backing track that we have edited. And then I can just drop in the few moments that I need. Um, and so Tim was the, Timmy C was the first guy that came in and they set up all of his shit and set up his pedal board in front of the, in that little room at the village with the old Neve. And he, and I'd never met him and he came in. Oh, the interesting thing is the control room at the village in this little room, there's a bathroom in the control room at the other, like at the other end, there's a bathroom. And for whatever reason, because it was a West side bathroom, occasionally Rick would stop by just to use the bathroom. Um, (laughs) And and this was one of those days. It's the only reason he booked the studio. (laughs) (laughs) And so he was in there and Timmy C comes in. He's a big, imposing dude, amazing human. One of the best people you could ever meet in your life. But he is fucking imposing. And he comes in. And, I, and he sees me and he goes, you better fucking tell me that Tom Morello is coming in here tomorrow to do the same fucking thing I got to do. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> wow. He's like, he's a big dude. And I was like, I was a little nervous. I'd never met the guy. And then Rick comes out of the bathroom. He's like, hey, everything's okay. You know, we'll just, just go ahead and play it. He does his whole like disarming routine yeah. and everything is fine. So then play the whole show down. I can't even remember if I used any of it. And then, uh, and then Tom came and played the whole show down. I think I used a couple of moments moments because his shit just got out of tune um and so on the while i was doing that they were finishing up what turned out to be the renegades album and so they set up in the live room rick set up a little control room in the live room and zach started doing all his vocals in the booth which is totally cool i get to hang with zach all the time um and uh and that was incredible uh, did you ever cut vocals with him with zach? no no never did it's a super it's a super weird thing because he's the sweetest guy and he's super intellectual. And we were talking about Fela, Kuti all the time. And then he'd take the SM7, your mic right there, and then he'd go into the booth and he would turn into that guy. And it was electrifying to see that happen just like right in front of you. He wow. would just turn into that guy, you know. And then the take was over and he'd be normal Zach again. <laughs> it was amazing. Amazing. Uh, and uh, so then they finished up those overdubs and I just started, we ran out of time in that studio. So then we went over to to sunset sound and that's where i just mix renegades on the back of that wow um just have you seen the um the video i saw it at i think it was at nam garth did a talk about the first rage record and he had footage from like a handy cam just in the live room while they were cutting and it's to the back of zach and you can see he's got one hand kind of behind his back going nuts just ready to fucking let loose and it's some of the most exciting stuff i've ever seen is the back of zach while they're cutting that first record you know wow I mean, that was like it's such an incredible band and such a rare thing to be a part of, you know. And then so then what happened was we started mixing Renegades at the other studio. And like it's a covers record, which a lot of times people think that stuff's goofy, but it was it was sounding kind of good. Um, and uh, we got I got like three or four mixes in and I came into the Sunset Sound one day and everyone's like, did you listen to the radio this morning? I'm like, no. <laughs> well, you know, I don't, Zach quit the band. And I was like, whoa, really? <laughs> oh, uh, all right. And then I'm like, 
I guess it doesn't really affect anything because I'm just playing mixes for Rick anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm like, I, I guess we just continue, you know? And then it turned out that Zach, the story is that Zach didn't want to put out a covers record. And the rest of the band said, you haven't heard how the album's coming out. It's really good. Like, we think we should put out this whole record. And they all kind of ganged up on him. And he was like, that's it. I'm out. And that's according to firsthand knowledge. That's why he quit wow. at that point. I mean, I'm sure it was he, the, the straw, the last straw, but still. Yeah, of course. yeah. and then he yeah. told Rick like a year later, he's up at Rick's house and he said that he thought Renegades was the best album they'd ever made. Or, <laughs> you know, so Rick's like, well, you quit the band over this, you know. Um, but, uh, but at any rate, um, yeah, so that was a big deal. As soon as you start mixing a Rage album, then the phone starts ringing even before the album's done. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then, of course, I mean, we can talk about some of the other stuff in a second, but we might as well keep this thread going because Zach quitting the band is what leads to Audio Slave. Yeah. So, you know, that. Right. I remember hearing about that project. I think it was on the radio or something. I was driving. It's like KROQ and, oh, there's going to be a band with, you know, these people. And I thought, man, I bet you Rick's going to do it. And I haven't been able to tune vocals for him yet, but I want to work on that record. <laughs> that was like, as soon as you heard that that record was going to exist, like that's the ultimate. That's it. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, they spent, I was like, after Zach left, there was a lot of talk about who should sing. And uh, I sent him down to sing the international noise conspiracy. Cause I thought that guy would have made a good front. Person yeah. For, yeah. Dennis yeah. would have been amazing. Um, but uh and he ended up signing his band out of that, which is kind of cool. Oh, so I was um, going to yeah. ask, is that how Rick came across them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, amazing. He and Tom would see his band, and then Rick's like, this guy's good. He's not right for the band, but then he signed it. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and so then I remember when they started recording Audio Slave, they were at Studio 3. Yeah, Studio so 3 with Dave, yeah. And then I like, I remember uh, Rick told me that they had started and I wanted to go to actually I might have, I had a room there for a long time so I, that was probably after I was already there I think so but I mean because you mixed the record in that room so either you were about yeah. to move in well actually no because the mixing was forever after the tracking so That's who right. knows I think I moved in slightly after that yeah but, but I remember going into three and they used to have when you're the way the studio worked maybe he still does is you walk in from the parking lot and studio three is right there and then you go down the hallway and there's all these other rooms Oftentimes, whoever's in Studio 3 would just leave the door open. And so you could kind of hear what was going on. I mean, there was a funny thing that happened once when Rick was in there producing Tom Petty. And uh, I, they'd, they had been in there for like a week. And Richard Dodd, who's the, I really look up to as an engineer, he's brilliant. Um, he was tracking it. And I walked in and I couldn't see what was going on, but I heard the music. I'm like, oh, shit, they're mixing already. Wow, sounds amazing. That was really fast. I walk around the corner. The band were in the room playing. Oh my and I, god! It sounded like they were singing. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, no. I, I remember he he texted me, wanted me to come down. I walked in, and they were working on the rough tracks for Cochise. And I was just like, oh my god! It was like, it just felt so explosive and ridiculous. You know? Yeah. Just a raw, you know. Um, and yeah, no, that took a. They were they took a break. Chris had done some vocals. Some of that stuff got redone. Um, yeah, we well, sang the record leak. three times, I think. There was an early version of that where I did a bunch of rough mixes up at the house, and um, he was up in Seattle, and they went through Bad Animals. Uh, I had to play them all by ISDN, um, and somebody kept a copy of them on CD of all the rough mixes at Bad Animals. And so, like, this was like six or seven months later, they're still working on vocals or whatever, and I was. This is when I had the Romicello and I came in 
And my manager, Frank McDonough, texted me and he's like, dude, you need to turn on K-Rock right now. And I turned on K-Rock and they were playing the rough mixes. Oh my God. So somehow all of the rough mixes had gotten leaked to some website in Italy and they shut it down in like a day and a half, but it took the wind out of everything because, you know, people had already sort of heard what it was going to sound like. Yeah, it, was, it didn't, didn't hurt the record too much as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> it did okay. But, but yeah, no, I, rem I remember that happening because I still have CDs of the last roughs that Dave and I did when we finished the record at, um, not NRG, what was the other one out in Burbank that was the old uh, Scientology building? Um, anyway, whatever. We did a full set of roughs right at the end of the last bits of the overdubs before Chris sang. And so I still have those. And I thought, oh my God, were they? And I remember digging through boxes like, oh, nope, there they are. You know, it's not me. <laughs> yeah. It took us a while to figure out how what had happened, you know, because um, the, the leak never comes from the studio people. Ever. No, no. It's usually manufacturing or mastering or, you know, somewhere down the chain a bit. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, at least they were the roughs that came out of Rick's house and they didn't sound that bad, you know. Um, but uh, uh, yeah. And so then we mixed that and that, that was about a six week mix. That took a while. I mean, when you mix for Rick. It took a while anyway, because he wouldn't always check in. You didn't know where he was. And I wasn't mixing the box. He'd spread it out on the console like this. And it was on the desk until it was done. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you had all now, kinds of stuff running live, too. I mean, I know you had a couple of guitar amps running for snare and vocal and all kinds of stuff. There was a lot of crazy shit going on on that mix, for sure. That was not a uh, straight ahead. But mixes weren't straight ahead. You could take two and a half days and try a bunch of stuff out. And at the end of the album, there would maybe be two or three recalls. You know, instead of the way we, we work now, recalls are a, a part of the approval process and they go on for quite some time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So so you're mixing a lot of stuff for Rick at that in that period. And we'll come back to that because there are obviously a couple of records. But was there anything else going on sort of in that leading up to the Audio Slave time period that you're doing elsewhere that we should touch on? Because, I mean, I've got lists of bands, but when stuff came out, of course, has nothing to do with when you make the record sometimes. Like Audio Slave, I mean, that came out a year and a half later or something like that. So, I mean, around that time, because uh, I was always still producing at the same time, um, but the mixing started to get out of control there because of those particular records. And I had, I produced this band called Cave In. We did an album together, um, which was super fun and felt, like imaginative and and kind of new in the way that I like music to be. Um, and uh, on the back, that was right before the Audio Slave thing. And then when Audio Slave was coming out, um, I think that was the fall of 2002. Um, Frank had asked me, he's like, well, what do you want to do for the fall? You want to just like keep mixing or do you want to try to produce something? And I was like, oh, I produced this Danish band called Mew. Mm -hmm. um, who and who've you know gone on to get a bit of um, a really original, fantastic career going. Um, they were huge fans of this band called The Swirlies, which was the first record I ever did. And initially, they had the guy from The Swirlies produce them, and then they eventually got a deal with Sony in the UK, and they hired me to produce an album that ended up being called Fringers, that has a, a bit of a cult following. Um, the bass player for that band, when we were working at Ridge Farm, uh, played me Muse. I'd never heard Muse before. We were listening to Origin of Symmetry. I was like, this is, kind of, this is actually kind of good. Um, and then when I got back to the States, uh, around the time the Audio Slave came out, and Frank was like, well, you know, is there anything out there you want to produce? I'm like, kind of into this UK band called Muse, but I don't know if they, you know, I have no idea what's going on with them. You know, maybe give them a ring. 
And uh, he gave them a ring and the band seemed interested. And they're like, well, why don't you come over to the UK and we'll do a few tracks together. Um, and that was in, I think, December of 2002, maybe 2003. Um, and uh, so we went to Air and just did 10 days at Air Studios. Um, and I, oh, we did a little bit of rehearsal first, which is, I'm, it's only happened once since then, but um, we did a little <laughs> bit of rehearsal. Uh, and in the rehearsal, that was the first time I think they'd ever really, they'd work with Lecky and a bunch of other brilliant people for sure. But like during rehearsal, there was some song, I think it was uh, what ended up being Hysteria. There was some like descending riff that Matt had that I could tell what he was trying to do. And I just didn't think it was that good. And I remember saying like, I, there's a better riff for that that I know you can come up with. Like you're trying to do something kind of heavy, but that doesn't sound very heavy to me. And so he was like, really? And then he just sat down on the floor right there in rehearsal and I like, came up with whatever the part ended up being. So there was, a, there was a few days of that and they were all living in this little house in Islington with, uh, with Tom Kirk and it was a cool little thing. And then we went into, um, we went into air uh, for 10 days and just, or nine days and just worked nonstop. I brought over an engineer friend of mine named Wally Gagle and we just didn't sleep and we recorded uh, Stockholm Syndrome, Hysteria. I'm trying to think what a bunch of key tracks happened right in that first time period. And in the same way that this gear thing that we were talking about, there were two different things that happened on that. I brought over the Kima system, which I, well, actually, I think at this point, I didn't have the Kima system because this was just a tryout. We were just right. going to see if maybe we were together. But what I did bring was the thing called the Nord Modular. Nord had a uh, a, a, a kind of a virtual modular system you, that you had to run on a computer and it had like an interface to the keyboard. And so like the first time we used that was for Stockholm Syndrome, my vocoded Matt's guitar riff. The main riff is a kind of a metal riff and that, that starts the song. And uh, I don't like to do things that sound too straight ahead. Um, and so I vocoded his guitar. So it had this like sort of weird throaty thing going on. And I don't think he'd ever heard anything like that before. And we immediately connected with this idea of always trying to explore new space when you're doing something like never just tick boxes. You're always trying to go somewhere that you haven't been yet, you know, um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, that's just the nature of it. You yeah. Know? Um, so, yeah, so we did those nine days and then uh, decided to do the rest of the record. So then we booked Grouse Lodge in Ireland and, uh, and recorded most of it there and then finished it here in L.A. Right. Right. Well, yeah, we were going to get to Muse anyway, but right. well, let's <laughs> like next, like you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, oh, okay. Let's go back into Rick World for a second and talk okay. about. Uh, well, we could talk about all the Mars Volta records, but we should start with the first oh, yeah. one because yeah, we yeah. gotta, you know, Omar and Cedric. You can't just pass them by. We gotta. No, no, no. I mean, that's uh, those are some of my favorite albums I've ever done. Yeah. Um, and I feel like a uh, totally privileged that I should ever. Uh, be in the same room with those guys. I still do, to be honest. Um, but uh, yeah, the first time, this is actually a pretty funny story. Let me see here. So the first time I meet those guys, they come, like I've been mixing the Laust with Rick and the way it works with Rick is you like basically get stuff sounding good with him and then eventually he plays it to the band. And we got like two or three songs in and then all of a sudden Omar and Cedric wanted to come in the studio. I'm like, cool. You know, I just seen them play the Troubadour. It was like the greatest live show I had ever seen in my life. Right. It was like, it was insane. And so they came down and they're like super dead serious. I'd never met them before. And they're like, okay, um, 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I gave him like, you know, a clipboard and a pencil. I'm like, can you guys just sit in the back of the room and just listen to the mix and just, you know, write down some notes as to whatever, any like opinions you have. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, okay. And so they're sitting there and I play like Drunk Ship of Lanterns or something. And they're like listening to it and they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they're like, and then when they're done, they go, yeah, it sounds all right. Could you make it sound more like this? <laughs> And, I was, and for a second, I thought they were serious, you know, and then I realized that, you know, that they weren't. Um, but that <laughs> but in a way, they kind of were. <laughs> in a way, they kind of were. Yeah. Um, and they incidentally, after a few days, like booted Rick off the rest of the project. Uh, and I just they came in they're like, well, the good news is the mixing is going to pick up speed. Um, the bad news <laughs> is uh, you're going to have to redo a bunch of them because we just fired Rick. And I was like, holy shit, nobody <laughs> fires Rick, you know. Um, they just felt like he was focusing on the vocal a lot and they wanted all the effects to them. The, their friend, Jeremy, who had done a lot of the effects, uh, the effects were an, were an equal member of the band is the way yep. they put it. Yeah. And Rick was, uh, pushing all those things down because he, he hears things the way he hears them, you know? Yeah. Um, and so the album got a lot weirder at that point. Uh, and all the like crazy panning and stuff, we did that on the console. Um, uh, because the I was on a J and the J you can automate panning, um, and uh, yeah, I mean those were pretty complicated mixes. Not as complicated as the second album I did with them, which is Francis the Music. Yeah. Is a hard, I still maintain that was the most complicated analog mix that has ever happened. I don't think any <laughs> album has been more. I'm not saying it's perfect because uh, it isn't, but I think that just on a logistical mixing level, that was right. Well, see, now I might have one to rival it though in a totally different way. Because I was involved in that one Michael Jackson mix where we had four 3348s and two SSLs all locked up. Okay, that sounds bad. So that was terrible. <laughs> that was horrendous. I had to be in the back room hitting execute on the first SSL. I'm like, roll tape, roll tape, roll tape before it freaks out. <laughs> so, yeah. We only had two Pro Tools rigs hooked up. <laughs> but we had to automate everything. There's a lot of stuff on Francis that sounds like crossfades that happened in mastering. It all happened during the mix. Right. Yeah, I mean, right. Omar especially seems as though, and it, it can change along the way, but he has the finished record in his head before he even straps on a guitar in some ways. And then there's experimenting and a lot of stuff, but there's a huge big picture thing that he's yeah. got and he'll chase it. it I'm explaining it wrong. It's not like, oh yes, I want the snare to sound like this, but it's like, well, this moment in the song is gonna make me feel like that scribble. And you yeah. will beat on it until it does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, uh, for, for Francis, which is the album after this one we're talking about, uh, he had two Pro Tools rigs and he didn't hear the album until we started mixing. He couldn't hear all of it put together. Um, I'm sure he made like submixes or whatever, but it was the first time he, so we actually mixed that album three times. The first time was just so he could basically put it all together. And then the second time was I wanted to actually make it sound good. And then we took, a, and we lo totally lost our minds while we were mixing that completely. And then we took a break and they went to South America to play some shows. And I listened to it and I'm like, guys, I know I can make this better. And uh, they were like, I think I heard Omar vomiting at the other end of the phone when I said, <laughs> he was like, I can't. He's like, I don't want any part of it. I'm like, okay, fine. So then one of the songs is 33 minutes long. Yeah. Um, now, I think on Spotify, it's all been edited up. So it seems like a bunch of 
and songs put together, but that was the 33 minutes mixed from top to bottom. Yeah, I worked on that record really early on just doing bass overdubs. Like Omar wanted to record bass at my place for some reason. And yeah, putting, putting that together and some of it is completely unplayable. And so we were cutting stuff at half speed and then chopping every note and according it back up to full speed so we didn't have to pitch shift anything and just insane. And I think a lot of that got recut because it was like once he heard what you could do with the thing and like, okay, so then stuff got rewritten a little bit and very yeah. involved, a very involved record. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, just like totally singular point of view musically. Well, and so we'll we'll come back in time, but let's go. Let's take the Mars Volta train all the way up to the last um, at the drive-in record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I think I sat out. I mixed all the Mars Volta records except there was one they did for Warner Brothers that I sat out. I can't remember what it was called. Um, and then uh, yeah, they t talked about getting at the drive-in back together, and that was a big deal for me um, because that band is iconic. Um, Tony is an insane drummer, just like really unique, uh, kind of frightening to watch him play up close. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we did that over at Sound Factory and, and uh, it took a minute for Cedric uh, to, because in Mars Volta, he's always singing, whereas in At The Drive, and he's kind of mostly just shouting. Yeah. And uh, it took a second for him to really get get his groove on. But um, yeah, I, that was, a, for me, a pretty inspiring uh, special time to be in a room with those guys. And was that a faster record than a Mars Volta record? It must have been. Yeah, that we did that pretty quickly. I think it was like, I can't remember, four or six weeks or something like that. I mean, Mars Volta albums would, sometimes the song was four or six weeks long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was good. That was really, really fun. Then we went out and toured for a while, and um, I still keep in touch with those guys. All right. Well, so there are a couple other bands that I just love that you've mixed. Um, Rival Schools. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a wow. fucking great record. Yeah, that's a throwback one. That was um that was right in this time period we're talking about. Um and Butch Walker was the producer, and that was one of Butch's earliest productions. And Butch has gone on to be, of course, like a pretty super pretty famous super producer. Yeah. Super sweet guy. Um yeah, no, that was a really fun record. Um and Butch has a really different production style, though, than, I mean, because a lot of the people we've been talking about up till now are more capture the band, but with some experimentation, whereas Butch is really putting a record together. It, it seems to me, anyway, I've never worked with him, but if, from listening yeah. to the records, they're, they're almost, it's like in the way that Jack Knife Lee puts a record together, where it's, it's constructed from the pieces, not like, hey, you guys go play, and now we'll, we'll work on it a little bit. I mean, I think... No, I think with, with Butch, it, at that point, it was actually a bit more like that. It was pretty, it was pretty loose. Right, okay. Um, I'm just checking something here. Hang on a second. I might be conflating two albums. <laughs> That's all right. No one will know. <laughs> Somebody's going to know. Let's see here. I'm gonna have, somebody's going to have to correct me if I'm spacing out on this. It'll be in the chat. Mark will tell us at the end. No, I, that's not the record that... No, no, no. We're conflating two albums. Okay. No, no, no. Well, Schools was a guy from Quicksand. Uh, okay. Yes. No. Uh, I mixed that at the uh, at the Village on that old Neve right around the time of doing Renegades. 
Um, okay. I don't remember that much about that other than I really liked the album and Walter was around from Quicksand and he's a super sweet guy and, and did really Rick... kind of mild-mannered for like an album that's pretty ferocious. And was Rick stopping by to use the bathroom even on someone else's session or? Uh, no, no, no. Okay, no. just checking. I'm just curious. <laughs> possible though. It is entirely possible. Okay. I don't think so. So there's another, there's a whole sort of group of acts that I want to talk about. Um, and we can group them together, we can split them apart or whatever. But you mix the, f as far as I know, the first things ever put out for Franz Ferdinand, Maximo Park, uh, Block Party. There's a whole sort of UK, it's not post-rock, I don't even know what the genre would be. They're not necessarily even in the same genre. But like you were the guy when there was a newer, cool UK band, you were going to mix it no matter what it was. And I'm just curious sort of if that felt like that to you and if you pursued it or just how all that stuff came about. I still do a bit of that there. I mean, come on. No, no, absolutely. But I'm saying there there was a time when yeah. all of these bands happened to be doing their thing and you were absolutely the guy for it. Yeah, I mean, the Franz album was a production and that was their second album. I didn't work on their first album. Okay, all right. Um, and, uh, and that was cool. That was super fun. Um, that was before... Uh, a block party and whatnot. I mean, I think that the first of those things might have been might have been the Maximo Park album. I mixed like three or four singles on that, and that was all coming through Paul Epworth, who was a, a young producer at the time, and uh, he was the one who was getting a lot of these kind of projects. Right, right. And then the Block Party record came in. I remember hearing like the rough mixes or the demos for Block Party and just kind of being blown away at how exciting that band was. Um, and uh, Paul came over for the mix of that in New York and and uh, Kelly was there for a lot of it. And it was cool. It took a minute to sort of like shave the aesthetic down just right, because at first I thought it sort of sounded more like early Roxy music. Um, and uh, Paul sort of sorted me out. Um, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, no, I mean, I didn't you just work on these things. You don't know if anyone else is going to like them, you know, like I didn't know that Block Party was I mean, I loved it, but to me that usually that's how you tell if, if it's going to do well if you unequivocally really like something then usually other people are going to as well if you're talking yourself into liking it then it's a 50 50 chance as to what what's going to happen when it's over right um but uh i loved that record and the whole whole process and um yeah that that thing really sort of took off there and then i think be, partly because of the absolution album was so big in the uk in particular and then after doing these other things, I just developed a lot of relationships in the UK that continue to today. I mean, I've always loved uh, English music. You know, that's yeah, been the case as a kid, um, and still do. You know, I think that there's a lot. There's a good combination of like things that are experimental and also are um, uh, appeal to a lot of people at the same time. Right. Yeah, I, I feel exactly the same way. There's there's a way that they can do things that if other people do it sounds cheesy but they can absolutely get away with it somehow yeah 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 Th for that's sure. a little bit more uh, universal somehow well so we just like flew past the fact that you went from new from la back to new york oh yeah we did and this was and this was i mean and i remember it happening because i remember i was work i don't remember what i was working with rick on but he's like rich is going to new york like, what yeah. the hell? I mean, I think like, you know, you were not, it wasn't like stuff wasn't happening in, in LA because Rick was still having you mix pretty much everything he was doing. Um, so I'll shut up now and just, just curious oh. what, what brought it on. 
I think it was a combination of things. Um, the it's a we you could relate to this like being in the Rick camp is uh, you feel kind of cloistered in there, um, and I felt a little bit like when you'd go up to Rick's house to play in the mix, you'd be waiting in line behind like maybe you or Fiddleman or Jim Scott, and it'd be like six people there waiting to play him a mix of whatever it is you're working on. And if you're involved with doing something with him, your entire world must be on his schedule. Yeah. Um, I don't blame him for that. That's just the way it is. He's a busy guy. Uh, and after a while, I just got kind of tired of it, you know? Um, and I passed on mixing the second Audio Slave album. They, everybody wanted me to, and for reasons I don't need to get into, I didn't want to do it. Yeah. Um, and I had to talk to Rick about that as to why I didn't want to do it. Um, and uh, it, I was just ready to move on. I was starting to produce a lot more and I was just kind of wanted out of his circle. That was part of it. And the other thing is that when I lived in New York before I was broke and I was less broke and I wanted to see what it'd be like <laughs> to live in New York, not broke. Um, and uh, so yeah, I moved back to New York for a while and it was really fun for, for a few years. And then I was, you know, after a while, it kind of wears you down. But I had a lot of great experiences there. Yeah, that's sure. a totally different city when you're not broke. I've only really lived there broke, but I, yeah. you know. I mean, it wasn't like I was a trillionaire or something like that, but it was just like, you know, the difference between like working constantly and being fine and not, you know what I mean? Right. Um, but it was cool. I mean, I had my own room at Electric Lady. I, I made them pull out a console and then we carried my 88R up three flights of stairs. <laughs> and installed it into Studio C where Elmhurst has been camped out for a few years now. And uh, it was, yeah, I mean, it was interesting because Electric Lady, probably jumping forward here a little bit, but like Electric Lady at that point wasn't that busy. They were really having a hard time. Right. Uh, and, and I moved in there, got Brower to move in and, and kept the place really busy. And, you know, Lee Foster claims that I kept the place from going under. I don't know if that's true, but I'd like to believe it. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure it is true. I mean, because it's, you know, the the studio system obviously is collapsed now, but it was always sort of teetering. And when you're dealing with real estate, like New York, it's going to teeter a hell of a lot faster than in a place like LA. Yeah, no, he was, they didn't own the building, even though the studio had been there for, you know, decades. And uh, the landlords were putting the screws to them. I mean, soon after that, they were bought out by an extremely wealthy person and they can do whatever they want now. That's kind of who should own a studio like that. Yes, you know? yes. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm you really know, good. how to make a million in the music business start with five, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, basically. Well, so let's talk just sort of conceptually here for a second because we've gone through a lot of different geographical moves. We've gone through a few different consoles and you're sitting in front of a different console now. We yeah. talked about this a bit earlier. You had the Kima... So you got Akima to work on this Muse record, like we're going to use it on everything and it's going to be great. And you do this a lot where you're, you're pushing yourself. And actually, you talked about this, um, I think it was in another webinar, where you talked about the fact that you actually did a record in Logic because you didn't like the way it sounded when you bounced it out to bring it into Pro Tools. And so even though you didn't know Logic, like, well, fuck it, I'm going to do that. And the same with Cubase and... You yeah. never say, you're not interested in being in your comfort zone, it seems. Yeah, I guess I'm not. I mean, I don't see it that way. I, I would like life to be more comfortable. Um, uh, and the thing you're talking about, um, there were two, the first two times I mixed a record in Logic was 
the first thing was uh, Foster the People, uh, uh, Mark's first album. He used Logic. He'd been using it as an artist that's, that's uh, pumped up kicks he wrote and mixed entirely on Logic. And so to me, it was clear watching him use that program that that was his kind of his instrument. He can play everything, but that was his like. Right. And we did a couple of tracks together. Uh, we kept it in Logic because I wanted him to be familiar with the tools that he's using. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why, like we did uh, Houdini and Kids. Uh, Kids has a different name now, um, but uh, it, it, ha it still felt like Mark's music, you know. Um, and then I mixed a Shin's album for Greg Kirsten, and Greg uses Logic, and he was he uses a, he had a ton of parallel processing going on in Logic, and I couldn't figure out how to bounce it out so that it sounded like his references. Right. It was I just couldn't figure it out, so I just left it in Logic and figured out how to route the outputs to the console and mixed it like that and it was a slow process i think that like everyone got pretty grumpy at me because it was just <laughs> it was slow you know um but to me i felt like it's because i was being truer to the music uh and also sometimes when you bounce out of a daw it, it doesn't sound the same to me as no no inside. definitely and i used to be really adamant about that like uh the other time that happened was mixing church's first album they were using cubase and I didn't want them to dump it out of Cubase because I'm like, we're going to lose something if we do that. Like the, the rough mixes they were sending sounded fantastic. Um, so I just mixed, I'd never even seen Cubase before, but I figured out how to output it to the console and, uh, and, and we mixed it out of Cubase. You know? And that also they were on the road as well for most of that time period. And they were able to like send me updated files that I could just drop into the session without it being uh, right. super hassle for them. You know? Um, but that slowed that process down as well, which, you know, I'm sure they're probably annoyed at. But it's the album turned out great. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it it's, goes back to stuff you were talking about at the very beginning, where it's just you're always trying to get something new. You don't ever want to settle. And yeah, it never uh, occurs to you to settle. No, I don't know what that... I mean, there's, especially on the mixing side, there are some people who have, like, they get a system together. Most people do. They have their templates or whatever. And uh, they kind of just do a similar thing with every mix. And to some degree, you know, we all go in waves where we'll do that. We'll get like a couple of things we're really into for a while. Um, I've been like pretty hesitant to do that. I do have, of course, a setup template. Um, but, you know, the vocal chain from one album to the, another is certainly not the same thing. Uh, I just try to react to whatever seems good at the time. I wish that I had a really detailed system that I could just cane music through it all day long because you know people can be really successful and do a lot of work in a short period of time that way it's just that's not the way it works for me no well but i think it's also i mean it's possibly because you're also still always actively producing as well if you're just mixing then right. maybe you'd get more into that mindset but you're always creating so you're not just like yeah here's a bunch of stuff it already sounds good i just got to finish it Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, that changes your mindset quite a lot. Um, you know, occasionally so stuff has gone out to other people for mixing that I've produced. That's been a, I can count that on one hand at the time that's happened. Yeah. I can't, I can't. I mean, so anything in particular that you can even remember? I mean, the only time I can think of it really happening was on the Muse Simulation Theory album. They had, uh, I produced, which is their most recent album. I ended up producing most of that album. The band liked to try different things out and they have a relationship with a couple other people going into that record. It was fine, you know? Right. Um, uh, I'm not really ter territorial about it. Um, especially if you're producing, 
you know. But, I mean, did you have producer approval over the mixes, or did you just kind of let go and say... Most of I did. On one song, I didn't, and I don't think that song turned out very well. Right. <laughs> so, all right, well, let's just talk conceptually about um, the... And this is sort of as geeky as we're ever going to get, but I am, I'm really curious to hear your take on mixing your own productions. Do you, because I know I don't do nearly as much of it as you do, but for me, I have two very definite phases to the project. When I'm tracking, there's lots of processing on individual things, but no plugins, it's faders up, like we just listen to what's tracked and that's it. Then when it's time to mix, I completely ignore all of that. I'm not going to record anything and I'm mixing because otherwise I just, I can't do both things. And do you separate <laughs> them or will you find yourself producing while you're mixing and mixing while you're producing and it just kind of now the record's done? Uh, it depends. I've gotten a lot. I, it used to be more of a mess like what you just described. It used to be you're in the middle of mixing something that you produced and something's still not right. And you're like, fuck it, let's just plug in the ARP 2600 and, and lay down a synth or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, the, uh, there's a notable example of that happening. Sometimes also when you're producing, you keep trying to win the argument and you don't always win the argument, right? And I used to get, I used to be, I think a much more difficult person to work with than just really put my foot down and not want to progress with the thing until I got my way. And now I realize it's much more you're riding a wave and you just chip away at it and you eventually kind of get what you want. Um, and I learned a lot of that on... Uh, uh, the Black Holes album with Muse. That was a very difficult album to make. Um, and there were, we had different ideas about a couple of songs. Um, and one of them is the song Supermassive Black Hole. There was a big instrumental section in the middle. And I kept, while we were making the album, I was like, dude, we got to put something here. We just can't have instrumental jam for whatever, 16 bars or something like that. And they were dead set against putting any kind of guitar solo or anything in there, which I can understand conceptually that wasn't what the song was about. But then I'm mixing the song at Townhouse and the song's mixed. And I'm like, you know, you're really into it. And then you get to the section and there's nothing going on in the section. I'm like, what do we, we got to put a solo here. And all the gear had already left town. And they're like, well, we don't even have a guitar. This is like Saturday night at 10 o'clock at night. And then Chris uh, Walson, who plays bass in the band, said, well, I've, I've got one at my hotel. I'm like, you want to go back and get it? So he went back to his hotel room, comes back. It only had four strings on it. Because <laughs> he's um, a bass player. Bass player right? <laughs> We had four strings on it and we had no amps. So I plugged it into like an H3000 and put it on. And then it had him play it backwards or something. I can't, I think he played it backwards with four strings with the H3000 on it. Um, and they came up with something that was kind of cool, but it was by no means, you know, the song was already mixed at that point. Um, but the funny part to that is that like three years after that record came out, Butch Big rings me up and he's like, yes, I'm in the studio with Green Day and we're trying to get that guitar sound for the solo for Supermassive Black Hole. How did you do that? <laughs> so, you know, sometimes uh, you just make the best of whatever you have. But that's an example of like, like if, you're, if you are producing while you're mixing, you have the leeway to try to, to make big changes at the last minute. You know? Right. But no, it's really hard. Uh, I'm better now. I'm trying to like, Instead of always spreading everything out while I'm tracking, we're doing get every, monitoring everything out of a stereo mix out of the computer, and, and everything generally needs to sound pretty good every day when people show up. So right. the, the, I wouldn't say the mixing is done, but there's a certain amount of like delay throws, some kind of processing on stuff that's already baked in, so that when the mixing, when you're mixing, you're it's maybe half done already. You know. Right. Right. And is there stuff you know you're saving for the mix or? 
Not really. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I go a little bit light on some of the vocal processing, for example, during tracking. I just want it to sound good and snappy so people are excited about it. But when it when I'm mixing, I'll, I'll use probably a whole different set of things on the board. Right. Um, okay, let's let's go abroad for a second because we had a drunken game of ping pong in Iceland and it wasn't yeah. the only time you were in Iceland. You, you had a bit of a connection to the Icelandic scene for a bit. Proudest night. Um, <laughs> well, neither of us made it to the semifinals. <laughs> no, I made it to the finals. Did you? I did. Yeah, I got wrecked in the finals. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because the thing was, every time you won a game, you had to have a shot before you could play your next match. Yeah, I think I went out so early. I was really depressed about it. It depends on who 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 you got put against early on, because I wasn't the second best person. There was another guy there who was much better than me, but he went against this German guy in like his first round, and he lost. Right. Um, so I did make it to the finals, and then I was I got creamed. But uh, yeah, no, I ended up mixing a Sigaros album, and um, and as part of the process, I sort of talked them into letting me go and hang out with them before we started mixing. So I had to go to Reykjavik for a while, and <laughs> and we hit it off, and I become you know great friends with uh, Yonzi since then, and um, and yeah, we mixed that album in Los Angeles, and I don't that didn't necessarily turn into other Icelandic records, I don't think. Well, Monsters of Folk, uh, right? Monsters of Men, yeah. Monsters of Men, sorry. They they don't know each other, so it wasn't that was a completely different thing that happened like there they are were like 12 find... people in iceland man everybody knows everybody <laughs> i'm they just kidding know each other no because no, i took no. them over to yonzi's house uh for drinks one night and they'd never met him and they were it was like a big deal for them um at the time but, so it's uh, a sort of random that you had a few icelandic things yeah i right. think it was slightly yeah i uh, mean i would pursue those things it was i love being in Reykjavik. i spent enough time there now for a while i'm good for a while right <laughs> I was like, not this winter, but the winter before making the third of Monsters and Men record. I was there for, I think, four months. You know, that's, I'm good. Yeah, in the winter. I mean, I was only there for four days in the winter. And the first couple of <laughs> yeah. days, it was really, really cold, but it was still. And I thought, oh, this is nice. And then the wind started and that was it. Like, yes. no, I'm not, not doing this. <laughs> yeah. Um, God, I'm gone so out of order here. I'm like. So I want to, let's talk about Blonde Redhead of all things. Okay. Because super, super cool band. And I'm curious yeah. like how it came up, what the connection was, what did that tie into anything else? Was it a one-off? It ended up being a one-off. I think it came about because I just produced Interpol and Daniel Kessler, who's the guitar player in Interpol, knows those guys real well. Right. Um, and uh, threw my name in a hat. And uh, that was kind of... That was an interesting project because they came, they showed up and the songs weren't really arranged and certainly weren't finished. And so normally when you mix, you're supposed to have that stuff kind of finished before you show up. And they also didn't have a lot of money. So I'm like trying to get everything done as quickly as possible. And I would, they were like, well, we don't really have an ending for the song on every song. <laughs> and so we would sit and then they would maybe program something or we would try to arrange it. And I was just, I was going out of my mind because I was also doing like probably three other things at the same time. Um, and uh, and then it turns out Alan Mulder, who's a friend of ours, was also mixing some stuff at the same time. And in the end, they credited both of us with mixing. So I don't even know whose mixes are whose on that album. <laughs> to be honest, I have no idea. I can't remember. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't know by listening to it. I mean, I'm a big fan of Alan's work anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's funny to show up with the mix and the song's not done. 
I mean, obviously, <laughs> to be like, to have open questions is one thing, but there's no ending, yeah. you know? There's no ending. And it was just like, they hadn't even thought about it. And they just thought that would be normal to figure it out then. And to some degree, like, if it's a big budget record, whatever, you know, it's fine. But it wasn't. And we had, like, a very finite amount of time. Right. And Yeah, I mean, this is 4AD, just, right? So, I mean, it's, you know, they've been around, but it's not a big money label. Yeah. Um, and the studio was expensive, and I, I don't think I was getting paid hardly anything. We're just, I love the band, so we were just trying to get it done in the allotted amount of time, and it was, it was a little difficult. Right. Um, like, super cool album. I love the album. Well, let's go from the sublime to the ridiculous and talk about Foo Fighters then. Okay. Um, yeah, Foo Fighters. I can't remember how, oh, I know how I ended up on that record. We mentioned Luke Wood before. Luke Wood, who was one of the, He's the president of Beats. He just left a little while ago. Um, but um, he produced, a, uh, he didn't produce, he signed Jimmy Eat World uh, to Interscope. And I mixed an album for Jimmy Eat World called Futures. That was produced by Gil Norton. Yeah. Uh, uh, Gil's a huge, I'm a huge fan of his. Um, he's done so many incredible albums over the years. And uh, that was super cool for me to be involved on that. And um, that went well. And so then, a couple years later, Gil had produced the first Foo Fighters, well, actually the second Foo Fighters album, Color and the Shape, which did, which kind of broke them. They invited him back to produce another album, and Gil brought me in, and, uh, you know, just we mixed it um, out here on a vintage Neve console, 8078. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a super fun process. I mean, Dave's just a hilarious guy to spend time with. He's, you know, when he gets down to business, shit's pretty serious. Right. But uh, he is very entertaining. And can, is an amazing storyteller, as obviously we all know. Yeah. Um, but that was, you know, like on, there was a little bit of mixed leeway going on. There were rough mixes that I certainly had to pay attention to. But like at the beginning of The Pretender, uh, and like none of us, you know, like a lot of albums when you're working on them, you think like, oh, this song's kind of good. We have no idea if anyone else is necessarily going to like it, you know. Um, and we didn't know what the singles were going to be on that album when we were mixing it. Uh, it hadn't occurred to us which ones might stand out from the rest. But I do remember mixing The Pretender and that like the beginning, the vocals are hard panned and there's a few other, I tried to make it sound like the Beatles, the intro before the song kicks in. And that was something that he hadn't heard before and seemed pretty excited about at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, mostly the other thing that was notable about that process is for some reason, um, I don't know why, but for years as a mixer, I would never cut frequencies. I would only boost things. Right. Uh, the whole time I was doing all those records for Rick and around this time, I just didn't, I think mostly because you're working on old knees, which are so broad that you can't yeah, take They're not made anywhere. for that. No, maybe no. a filter, but yeah, you're not cutting. Yeah. And I, you know, you could cut in the computer if something was wrong, but I hadn't developed that habit yet. So it was mostly just fucking boosting everything. So there was like no headroom. <laughs> and so all the meters in the room were just pinned everywhere. And Dave came in on like, the first couple of days and was looking around and was like, I think a little unnerved. So I put white tape on all the meters in the room and drew in a VU that was right in the proper zone. So whenever he came in, he couldn't see what was happening. Um, and, uh, and he never I caught on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm much better now with my headroom, but th those records are just, there's, they're squeezed and slammed with it. I, they weren't really that compressed, but it just like, you know, slammed. No, I mean, look, there's so much talk about, you know, the volume wars and, and all of that. And, you know, and especially like the Metallica record that I mixed half of and won, right. won the loudness war. 
Thank you. <laughs> but it's I, it's hard for people to get um, how, especially on a full analog mix, how different it sounds if you pull everything back, even a dB. Things yeah. fall apart. Other things might be better, and there might be room and sound staging and blah blah blah. But <laughs> but it loses stuff, and it's because everything is breaking, and things break in a good way. But when you're breaking like <laughs> seventy things a little bit, you can't bring it back. You cannot. I mean, that's a yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. You know, because I kept like I would trim the faders back, and I and I'd be like seems a little funny maybe i'll just adjust this one thing and then a half hour later everything's back to where he started and i would do that like two or three times and i would just be like fuck it i guess i think this i get this just sounds good to me you know yeah um which yeah. is hard on the J, on the sslj because that board had no headroom so that was a super complicated to mix on that thing um yeah i would i have a pair of ear compressors that i would mix everything through and i lined them to minus six so whatever was coming out of the mix bus, they would instantly be brought down 60 dB before the, it would hit the insert return on the SSL. Right. Otherwise, it shit blowing up every day. Yeah, but it's it's just a totally different sound. And then, you know, people use that as the argument, well, you've got to use analog gear and you can't not use analog gear, which we're not, even, we're not going to get into at all. But, I mean, I remember Rick's, um, the 8068 he had at his house, which I mixed a bunch of stuff on that master fader had a big black knob at minus 15 because that's where that thing was gonna sit and then you'd still uncow the half inch machine because it was too loud right that's always right. yeah you'd always uncow the half inch machine forgot about that yeah, <laughs> yeah. i'd never print onto a cowed half inch machine ever it would always be down to minus five yeah input. yeah it'd be perfectly aligned for your headroom and then you'd have to go boink because there's no way in hell it was going to fit but who cared you just turned up the output you could listen to it it was fine. But I kept thinking it's because I was doing something wrong. I, well, me too. <laughs> We're both doing everything wrong our entire yeah. careers. So you've owned lots of consoles and you've had a room a lot of times. And, and even going all the way back to East West when you had the mix room, I mean, you didn't own that, Jay, but you were the only person in that room for a very long time. So you've had your own room a lot, but then you also go all over the place when you're producing. And I'm just curious if you really always want to have a room or do you feel like it's just the only way you can control your environment well enough? I think it's really important to have a room where you know what the limits are because you're more likely to push them. If you're in a room where it's unfamiliar to you, you hedge a lot of bets. Right. Uh, and I don't, you should hedge bets ever, um, even though we all do. And so you're more likely to go it's like the Beatles were in the same room for their entire careers. Those records would not have been the same. Obviously, they visited other studios. They went to the Olympic and Apple and whatnot, but they mostly ended up in two all the time. And some, sometimes they would mix in, I think it was three. Yeah. But they, there, was a, there was a confidence that they knew what was going out of the speakers so that when they like turned something up to an extreme level, they felt comfortable with knowing how that was actually going to sound. And when you're in a room that you don't know that well, it's, you just can't, you don't have that level of confidence. So... Um, and also when I was at cello, um, most of the time when I'm mixing, you're just, there's a lot of stuff coming through. You can't, you change rooms a lot. You just, you just park and stay, you know, um, the console conversation is another, we could have a whole separate show just about consoles. <laughs> well, let's um, just do a quick, let's do a quick run through. Cause I think it's, it's an interesting thing where some people, well, you, you tell a story of just like the consoles you've had and then I'll make some crap up to tie I'll it all together. I'll finish off the sentence you were about to say, which is that some people, 
I would argue smart people find a console that they're comfortable with and have some success with, and they stay with that console for the duration of their careers. I'm not as smart as that. And so <laughs> what I tend to do is find, I'll get really excited about something and then I'll find the limits of it. And then I'll be like, fuck this. I can't use this thing anymore. You know, like, uh, I used to mix on vintage needs back when we did a lot of these albums you're talking about. Um, and there was a time when Rick had sent me something to mix. I'm going to leave the band out of it. Uh, and I was on a vintage Neve and I could not make it snap. I couldn't make it. It just wasn't coming through. I was on the, the 8068 over at uh, Sunset Sound and I could not get it to do what it needed to do. And I was like, fuck that. And so then I left uh, there and started mixing on the J. And to me, the J was really cool because it's DC coupled and has tons of detail, which at the time, nothing had that amount of detail. It didn't have the same kind of heft or front or grip that like a G series does, but it has like all of this detail. And so as soon as I pushed the faders up, I was getting tons more detail than anybody else at the time. Right. So that was also like kind of a competitive advantage. Um, but then after a while, uh, I started to feel like the record sounded a bit clean and a bit slick. Um, and so then I went back to the G series, which was stupid. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I mixed a bunch of stuff on the G series, realized it was stupid. Um, so then I bought an 88R. I got a great deal on an Eve 88R. That was smart. Uh, so I did a bunch of things on the 88R. For those keeping notes, that would be the Arctic Monkeys Humbug album. Uh, there was a Mew album I did on there. Uh, a great band called a Big Pink UK band was mixed on that 88R. Um, and then, um, and then moved back to LA from New York at that point. And uh, like an idiot, I sold that console. Um, and, and then from there, I kind of like danced around a little bit. Last year, I tried the duality for a bit. And, but now I'm just back on the, the SSL 9000 because I think there's just nowhere else to go. The, 9000's, the 9000K is, the, is a solid, reliable, detailed, it's one of the best sounding mix consoles ever made. I and mean, if I can't make a mix sound, good using this then it's my own fault i've also tried uh summing mixers i've tried using no you know it completely in the box um and i've had good luck with some of that stuff i mean um some of the stuff i mixed through the shadow hills uh summing mixer i still think sounds great i think that box sounds fantastic but i just like i like having a tactile experience and i'm in a position where i can afford to have a console um for the moment and i'm still you know embedded <laughs> in the room uh and uh and i'm gonna keep doing that you know yeah well but i think it also it just speaks to the fact that you don't settle that you'll never say well hold on a second for years i've been saying that this is the best thing ever how can i possibly say it isn't now you like well because it isn't and now it's yeah. time to to make something else be the thing and you're never afraid to say it's what's coming out of the speakers is not happening, so let's move on, which right. is pretty bold. I think, I mean, I, I see the stuff that I use as, not as a crutch necessarily, but it does terrify me. Like when I stopped mixing on the Neve, oh my God, was I terrified. I can't imagine, yeah. But you're, you're I, and I'm, okay, well, let's ask you another question. This is more of a psychological thing, really. Talking to John Leckie last week, it became apparent that he's one of the few people who do what we do who has absolutely zero imposter syndrome feeling. Do you, are you familiar with the imposter syndrome yeah. thing? Yeah. Whereas I am like the walking poster child for imposter syndrome. You yeah. seem to be more on the John Leckie scale. 
I don't know where I fit in on that. Uh, interestingly, I had a long chat with um, Jimmy Iovine, who he is fully, have, he has imposter syndrome really badly which I can't believe because he's like the, one of the most successful people of his generation. <laughs> yeah, and one of you know? the, you know, from the outside, one of the boldest, most confident people. But yeah. that's his way of overcoming no it, I guess. No confidence at all. No confidence at all. He felt like he was faking it his entire career in studio. That's why he eventually stopped making records, which is kind of insane. Um, I, I definitely have a bit of imposter syndrome, but I don't know. I also, I'm super competitive and... Uh, um, I don't listen to my own records for the most part when I'm done with them. So it's not like I think everything I do is great. Most of the time I think that what I do when I hear it a year or two later, I wish there I hear things I could improve. Um, there's a few examples of things that I've worked on where I don't feel that way about. Um, but usually I feel like there's something with hindsight that I wish I could have changed. I mean, Lecky must not feel that way at all. I mean, well, I don't know. Lecky, so. I don't know that he doesn't feel that way about it, but he just is never like he's never worried about being found out. Whereas I'm constantly worried about being found out. <laughs> Maybe if you come up to Abbey Road in those days, it's, you give you a different sort of com uh, confidence. You know? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I mean, it was a very different era. But I mean, yeah, just to, you know, yeah, whatever. It, it's an interesting thing. And I, I it's also interesting how at first you would think like, oh, well, maybe having that is what drives people and whatever, but there's no, like, this is what's going to make you good. There's just a weird raw talent that has nothing to do with anything else that's going on right. inside of a person that is whether they're good at making records or not. And it doesn't yeah. have anything to do with gear. It doesn't have anything to do with their own opinion of themselves. But it does, I think, I think one of the consistent things is the pushing yourself. And if you're pushing yourself just so you don't get found out or you're pushing yourself just for the art, or it doesn't matter why you're doing it, but it is that you're pushing yourself. Part of it for me is that I, whatever genre of music I'm working on is almost never the genre of music I'm listening to. And so I'm always being inspired by something that I'm not doing. And I'm always thinking of like, you know, how am I going to get some of that happening with whatever the album is that I'm working on? And most of the clients that I, artists that I've worked with over the years expect that, you know, like uh, I sat out a uh, production on a couple of Muse albums and I got back in the saddle with them on this most recent album. And Matt and I had dinner and he was, he said that I'm a disruptor. He said, <laughs> that I go and disrupt everything that the band is doing. And he said, and he thinks it's in a good way. It happened to disrupt them in a way that works for them, you know, most of the time or whenever we do it. Um, uh, I don't necessarily feel that I'm a disruptor, although I have done that occasionally, you know, like really fucked up someone's flow because I'm trying to get at something, you know? Right. There's a, a UK band, Biffy Clyro. I did their, the new album, which is going to come out soon. It's great. Everybody buy it. Um, and <laughs> the previous album, Ellipsis, when we started that album, the first day we worked on a track called Wolves of Winter, which ended up being the first song on the album. And I had just gotten the Fairlight. So I was, I just wanted to use the Fairlight on everything because it's the new shiny piece of equipment in the room. Fairlight is like a really interesting 80s sampling keyboard. Thomas Dolby, so if anyone wants to hear a Fairlight. Well, and Peter Gabriel. There you go. All that, yeah. And, uh, so I had, we were recording a live band. And then I was like, I had this idea that I wanted the kick to have that Fairlight sound. I wanted to it to have that pocket. And I wanted everything. Uh, to be shaped around that sound. I wanted the sound of that to inform every other decision that we made. So after I got a take of the drums, we edited it together. I, uh, we made a MIDI track of the kick drum, triggered the Fairlight, and I had him go back in and replay the drums without playing the kick drum. Oh, and because I wanted to be able to crank the room mics, I had him not play the cymbals. So 
Ben's out there and he's got like, he can't use his kick drum and he can't use his cymbals. And this is the first day in the room with me. And he's just like, what the fuck is going on? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it's, it came out great, you know? Um, and then the whole middle section, the song kind of breaks down for the chorus. That's all Fairlight programming. Um, and that wouldn't have sounded the same if we were using Ableton or something like that. It just gets, it has an aesthetic and informs every other decision that you're making. It's not the quickest way to make albums. Um, but obviously, I, for some reason, that, you know, I've never been accused of making an album too quickly. <laughs> well, I don't think anybody has really. But um, but it's really interesting how you'll you'll take a band. I mean, and, and Biffy, I mean, they're just they're a heavy band. And I, I don't know their catalog that well, but I don't think anyone would say they're a super experimental proggy heavy band. They're just a heavy band. So well, that's some side to them for sure. Yeah, they're they are interested in some weird shit for sure. Right. Uh, Masonic, not so much. They're definitely more about like, you know, salt of the earth. Yeah. But so so to go down that road on day one is like it's bold. And I'm sure it didn't even occur if you weren't thinking like I'm gonna show them what I'm about, just like, oh, it's I, this song and I want this. And I that didn't even cross my mind. Uh, you know, I had to uh, lunch last winter with Frank Turner is another UK artist that I've worked with. And he was talking about the process of working with me. Now his album, that was the qu quickest production I'd made in, I don't know, 15, 20 years. We recorded the whole thing in I think four or five weeks. And, um, and he said that I spent a day and a half listening to cymbals because they hated all the cymbals that they brought with them. And so we rented a bunch in and I spent a day and a half just, a, I don't remember that, but I don't, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> It, see, that's the good part about your brain is it blacked it out for you. <laughs> but that's amazing. Out of 28 didn't, days. Didn't black, that, it up. Yes. didn't black it up Frank's, uh, Frank's memory. Unfortunately. No, but I, I love out of what a 31-day project, a day and a half of that symbols. <laughs> I just hate symbols. I just hate them, you know. Well, when you get them right, they sound really good. But if you get them wrong... It's just a fucking white noise generator that obscures everything yeah, else you're trying to do. There's a great there's a great article that needed some proofreading, some weird typos in it though, but I think it was on through the Grammy site and it was about uh Peter Gabriel's fourth solo record. There's just a lot of people talking about it. But that was his thing going into that record when he met Steve Lillywhite and they're like, So, what's your vision for this record? No symbols. That was it. <laughs> And there is not a single symbol. And Jerry Murata is talking about it and about how at first it really freaked him out. And then within about an hour, he'd kind of figured it out. And it wasn't a, we're going to cut the symbols separate. It was, this record has to work with no symbols. And they're a real crutch, man. I mean, I will fly crash symbol samples into mixes when I cannot yeah. get the downbeat of a section to work. Like, I know what'll do it. And yeah, so to go to go after an entire record that way, it's it's bold. But yes, yeah, symbols as great a job as they do when they're doing their thing, are a nightmare for every other aspect of their existence. I think. Another uh, uh, and the same thing. The My Bloody Valentine album, Loveless. There's no hi hat on that whole album. You know, I don't I don't know if that was a conscious choice of theirs, or they just or Kevin was just like, I hate hi hats. Don't put you know as they went. But I remember noticing that years ago. I'm a huge fan of that album and there was not a single hi-hat on there right right funny weird yeah. yeah and queens you know cutting them separate because you right. gotta be able to control them yeah but then there are a million bands that will cut the drums separate that way but it takes a special kind of drummer to be able to do it too like you don't do yeah. that so then you edit everything it's a right. yeah um okay I got a couple more things on my list just of specifics, but I'd also, right now, you said there are a couple 
records where you wouldn't change anything? And I'm just curious what those are. What are the, the records you've done that you really think like, yep, that's those are great. Like you would ask me to put together a playlist of things that that uh, that I liked. Yeah, which Mark on. will post for everybody. Those playlists have been really cool to have a look at. Yeah, I can't wait to see like what what Lecky has up there. Um, and it, I was surprised that I actually liked more of the things that I'd worked on. I'm really hard on myself, so oftentimes I think, well, I, you know, even like a lot of people who um, uh, still talk to me about the Audio Slave album, like I would remix that album in a second if I could, you know. <laughs> Um, and I think well, all of us are like that. You yeah. know? I just saw Scott Litt, they, R.E.M. was putting out some reissues and Scott Litt remixed the whole album. Like fans don't care about that stuff, but we do, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I would say that like I, there's this uh, Scottish band called uh, Las Vegas um, yes. that we made one album together. It was their debut album. I helped, I can't remember how I came across them, but I helped get them signed. Uh, I was a massive fan of theirs, still am. And, uh, and that album, I particularly the track Geraldine, which was the first thing we finished. Uh, when I was putting that playlist together, I listened to that and I was like, I would not, not change a fucking thing about that song. That is like, Good, I just feel so happy. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, and the Fiona album too is the same thing. Like I feel really good about that. And there's enough distance with that so that I can feel good about it. I mean, I think I probably feel better about a lot of these records than I would admit, you know? Right. But uh, but things like you know Francis to mute. I'm going to remix that album someday, even if it's when I'm 75 years old. <laughs> three years, and I'm going to mix that for nothing and just send it to the guys in the band because I know that album can sound better still. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> um, all right, let's talk about an album that I think, especially the first track, which I cannot remember the name, just sounds absolutely fucking huge. Is uh, Secret Machines? Oh right, yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. now here is nowhere that yeah yeah that was yeah that's a that's a cool album that was um it's funny uh taylor hawkins that was his big album like when i met him he was talking about that album all the time he just loved the drum sound on that record i mean that was like a, i think that was cut pretty live that was all on one reel of 24 track tape wow uh which is interesting because it's actually much harder to mix a record like that than it is when it's spread out across 150 tracks or whatever it is we get in the mail every day because you have to generate all the dynamics and the sonic changes only given a few ingredients, you know? Um, and uh, um, yeah, I mean, they came in with a pr pretty clear idea of what they wanted, very right. clear idea. And were the drums and, tracked uh, that way or did that really have to get constructed? No, the drums were tracked that way. The drums, it's actually quite funny. Um, when they came in to go over the mix with me, they were like, uh, like, yeah, man, sounds good, yeah. And the drummer's like, uh, hey, man, can you turn the snare down? So I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll turn the snare down. He's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Can you turn it down some more? I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, just the snare track, right? Yeah, yeah, just the snare. I'm like, yeah, turn it down. Yeah, that, just turn it off. Just turn it. I'm like, okay. So I turn it off. There's no snare mic on that record. <laughs> <laughs> and there's plenty of snare. Good. There's plenty of snare, but the close mic is off on the whole, on the whole album. Right. It's funny because that as a mixer, it's not something I would ever think to do. But lately there was a record where we were really struggling with the drum sound and I turned off the kick and snare mics and didn't even touch the rest of the kit and sent it. And the band's like, oh, that's it. Can you do that on the other songs? Like, no, it's too late. But it's weird because we, I mean, I personally spend a lot of time on kick and snare. Like they're really important to me, the way they drive and, but 
Yeah, you don't always need them. And I mean, to think that there no, there's no snare mic on that, and it's that's just gigantic drum sounds. And maybe because the, the close mics aren't as big a part of it, so... Yeah, probably. Yeah, no, everything just kind of came came together in the right way for that album. Yeah, it's it's an amazing sounding record. Um, all right, one little one that I was just curious about. So does it offend you? Yeah. Yeah. So James Russian, right. who was the singer yeah. in that band, I've and actually, program. yeah, and program, I've actually worked with him a bunch on productions over here because he's uh, managed by Alex, who's the A&R guy for Biffy Clyro. And so it's a whole you know thing tying everything yeah. together and he, i never really knew about that band but he's so talented as just yeah. a musical thinker and the way he puts stuff together but i'm curious what was it like when he was just being like the guy in the band and you know no that's one of my favorite albums too I, that should that should be on that list i totally spaced and didn't put that on there um i love that album that was like one of my favorite experiences he when they first showed up there was only two guys in the band and he would be he had he had a pc running cubase and he set up in my live room because they were still working on stuff i think i was actually mixing something else while they showed up because i was in new york at the time and often i'd be so behind schedule that people would fly in for their session and i'd still be finishing something else um and uh so he was in the live room and the other guy was just in the lounge, like on his computer or whatever. And after like two or three days of this going on, I went to him and I was like, while James is in there working, what exactly are you doing? And he was like, I just tell him when to stop. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he, he just has, he's a whip smart, brilliant programmer. And he put a whole song together in I think two days. Um, that song called Let's Make Out on there. Right. Um, and uh we had guest singer come in and yeah, that was, that was a good time. That was a really good time. And then I mixed the, that was two of the, those songs are mixed on the J and then I went back to Avatar and mixed the rest of it on G. Right. Um, we must've done like two singles first and then we mixed the rest of it later on. And I had jury duty the whole time I was mixing that. Album, so. <laughs> well, we won't talk about the case. Um, <laughs> so we should definitely talk about death cab. Yeah. Cause it's death cab. It's Death Cab. Yeah, I, that was, I mean, I love that band. Yeah. Um, they, uh, Chris Walla called me up uh, to work with them. And I wasn't, I'd known the band, didn't know all their catalog as well as probably should have at the time. And we had a few phone conversations and it seemed like it was, it, the fit was good. Ben came through um, to listen to some stuff. I was working on Kimber's album at the time, which sounds nothing like Death Cab. And I think Ben thought that was interesting because right. of that. Um, and so, yeah, we started working together and it was another one of these situations where we did a lot of shit upside down and wrong. Um, that was for the Kintsugi album. One of the things that, that's notable about that album that I didn't know at the time was that Chris Walla, a month, Chris Walla had produced all of Death Cab's exactly. records up until that point. Yeah. And they had been working on some of these songs and for whatever reason, the chemistry wasn't coming together. And so then they decided to bring in somebody else. Um, and uh, and that's when I started working with them. The vibe was great. Um, the vibe with everyone was great. Chris set up in, in the B room and he would take the live recording stuff and he would just basically, he had a modular synth and logic and he was kind of doing like weird remixes of stuff. And I would go in there, I'm like, what exactly are you doing in here? And he was like, I don't know, just goofing <laughs> around, maybe we'll use something, you know? He was, sometimes you have to do shit with no re for no reason and with no ambition. And that's what he was doing. Right. And, uh, and I was like, okay. And what would happen 
is I would go in there once in a while, like the song called Black Sun, which we had kind of structured out. I went in there and he was doing some kind of like weird remix of it. And I, and I remember hearing like the chorus and I was like, fuck, that sounds fucking incredible. I'm like, why don't we just cut to your, to your backing track in the middle of the chorus? So then we imported all of his stuff from Logic and the song is like, there's a bit of programming, uh, but as soon as you hit the chorus, the, the sonic landscape completely changes. And that's when we cut to this other version that Chris had been putting together. And then the whole outro was something that he had put together as well in the B room that I just heard and like was, it was practically making me fucking sob listening to it. Um, I mean, the song is about, I don't think it's a big secret, it's about the end of Ben's marriage. And it was so heavy. Uh, at the time, like I still like to do this, would work on one song for like maybe three or four days until we got it to a good place and then we'd park it and do another one instead of like cycling through a lot of songs. And after like four days of listening to that song, like it was just so emotionally draining that it was like three o'clock in the afternoon and we were listening to a playback and I was just like, let's just stop, let's just go home. We just don't need to get out of here, you know? Because <laughs> Benton is such a, an incredible writer that his songs are emotionally just really can overtake you, you know? Yeah. And when your job is to sort of amplify those feelings, like it takes it, takes it out of you sometimes, you know? Um, and, uh, um, and there was a, the first song on that album, um, was just supposed to be, uh, an acoustic guitar. And what is the first song on the album called? I, I don't remember. know. I'm terrible um, with song names. I could look it up, but the, Mark will um, look it, it up. With, it started out with him playing an acoustic guitar and we put like a little bit of programming and it was supposed to be that way. Um, and we kept adding stuff to it and it just got better and better. And then we added like Lynn Ellen. We had a lot of vintage drum machines on the record and we started adding a bunch of vintage drum machines to it. And it just took on a whole new life. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a fun record. It was a lot of experimentation as well. Because um, I was you know. curious. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to, to ask you about it was because Chris had produced everything up until then but he was still in the band, but it sounds as though for him, it was just this huge weight off his shoulders. And now he could just go fuck around and be a band member instead of being responsible for the whole thing, as opposed to having it wrenched out of his hands and losing control and it being a horrible thing. Well, I would have, I mean, I, I'm not sure that that's how he feels like what ended up happening. I mean, the cool thing was there were a lot of times where we had all four of them in the room together playing at the same time. And that had never happened. Really? Um, because he was always in the control room. Right. And, and we got like a Beverly drive. There's a whole bunch of stuff on Beverly drive that wouldn't have happened without them being in the room together. Um, and, uh, that felt really special. Um, but what I found out later on is that a month into the process, he quit the band and didn't, he told the band and didn't tell anybody else. And the band didn't tell me because they felt like it was going to really disrupt the process. <laughs> so, we finished tracking in like, I don't know, May or something. And then after a few weeks, I realized I needed more stuff for, from Chris, who had already left the band, but I didn't know that. So I called him up and made him fly back down from Seattle. And we spent another two weeks together working on stuff. And we had a great time. Um, and then like three months later, um, when the album was getting ready for release, uh, he called me and told me that he had quit the band and told me that he quit the band during the making of the album. but didn't want to tell me because it would have affected the process and the chemistry. Um, and uh, I, I was pretty shocked, I have to say. I did not see that coming. Yeah. Um, That's a really weird yeah. way to handle it, too, isn't it? To qu quit the band, but see the record through to the point of coming back. And yeah. Yeah. And they still had like a few shows booked, and he played those shows with them. And those were the last shows he played. Um, right. And there's obviously some acrimony going back years between the different members, which I found out 
Um, but, uh, but the process of making that album was, I had no idea. There, there was no bad vibe that I was aware of. Wow. Amazing. Weird. Uh, yeah. And then we did another album here in this room last year, which was great. We have, there's some new guys in the band and, uh, it was a bit more of a live performance based album. I think it wasn't quite as experimental. Um, but it's great. I mean, we set them up. So, uh, Jason McGurr, the drummer was in my booth and everyone else was in the control room. So it felt like I had death cab playing in my living room. It right. was incredible. That's awesome. And with Zach, <laughs> was, Zach ben, tracking live was, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Zach and yeah. Depper and Ben was just like singing into an SM seven with no headphones, just listening through the mains. Um, it literally felt like they're in my living room. It's really I, special. In LA, my room, all I really had was a massive control room. And then I had a small booth you could put drums in. And I did a couple records in there with full bands like that. And it's pretty awesome. And it's, yeah. it doesn't actually tie your hands as an engineer much. It's, you know, yeah. no. And I think we, we've kept quite a few live vocals too. And whatever, oh, yeah. just tracks yeah. bleeding and off you go. Yeah. I mean, it also makes communication way quicker. Yes, except the only thing I found is you'd forget about the drummer because you didn't have to turn on a talkback <laughs> mic. And so, so you'd be talking to the band and the drummer would go, uh, guys, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's we had true. to remember to, to do that, but that's funny. So, um, I mean, look, there's, there's so many other things. Is there anything else in particular you'd like to do or do you want to just have some questions? or Because... The discography is so deep that we could just, I could name bands for the next week and you'd talk about <laughs> them and. Um, yeah, we can just get some questions. I don't know right. sure how to drill, drill down on anything we haven't touched. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. I, I like, I think we got a pretty good arc of stuff and, mm -hmm. um, and hit the major, and, and you know there are gonna be questions about things. So maybe we'll bring Mark in or he'll bring himself in and, uh, and we'll get some questions cool. from the, the hoi polloi, as they say. <laughs> Oh, maybe Mark went to sleep. Oh, so he's listening to the stream. There's like a 20 second delay. So now, oh, okay. so we can talk about a whole nother record while we're waiting for Mark to hear that, that he's going to come in and, and give us some questions or I'm going to get a text from him saying, uh, I had to go. I don't know. No, here he comes. He's there. Uh, we've actually been off air <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> Again. Yeah. That happened last week as a joke. Yeah. That's not, it's not a good joke. <laughs> not <a> good joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good joke. <laughs> Cool. Well, uh, this has been incredible. Um, we have a ton of questions in here. Uh, I'll just start at the top and go from there. So um, the first question, the most upvoted one, is from Nicholas Hosford. And he asks, Rich, how and where do you draw the line between mixing uh, engineering credits and producer credits on your projects? Um, I mean, I don't do a lot of of co-production if i do it's usually with the artists uh I'm, I'm cool with it if i'm working on something and the track gets sent to somebody else that's fine with me you know um i, I try not to be that territorial about that kind of stuff because uh it doesn't really matter if your name's associated with it and it's a project that everyone's proud of it doesn't matter i'm happy to share engineering credits or whatever um you know mixing is usually a one-person job so either you mix it or you didn't uh except for in the case of blonde redhead um uh then uh, usually sort of it's it's easy to delineate what happened there well i think another aspect to that question is do you find yourself on a, what is supposed to be a mixing gig kind of finishing the production and then do you care if you get a production credit at that point yeah that definitely does happen a lot um it depends i don't 
if it's something that you're really digging in on and changing a bunch of stuff, usually you try to at least get an ad prod. And also because you frankly need more time. If you're just mixing, you can kind of just bang it out and make stuff sound great. But if all of a sudden, like I need to redo a bunch of drum stuff, make a bunch of edits, then it's just, it's going to take longer. So then you change the conversation and turn it to, into an ad prod. And then I don't care that much about the ad prod credit. I just want them to like maybe pay me a little more, but definitely acknowledge that these mixes are going to take a little longer because I have to do more work on them. You right. Um, that's, that's part of what that is about. Yeah. I've, I've found a big part of that is also how much you like the people. If you like the people, you'll do all kinds of stuff and yeah, it's just <laughs> mixing. If you don't tune one vocal, that's production. <laughs> it's yeah, not I that mean, severe nowadays, but you, you tune one vocal and you, some people ask for publishing you know for all that yeah, well yeah i'm always on the wrong end of that conversation <laughs> awesome uh okay so the next one is for both of you uh this is from alejandro alvarez and he asks how would both of you approach heavy compression uh in your face vocal sound uh now versus before has anything changed in how you guys go about that? Go ahead, Andrew. Well, actually, I want to turn this into a question for you because I feel like Muse, and not just the records you've done, but one of the defining features of Muse records is how loud Matt's breaths are on the lead vocal. They're as yeah. loud as the vocal, every single one of them. And it's exciting and it's a really awesome thing. And obviously, that's a compression thing. So, yeah. and that's a stylized thing. Um, and, you know, and now versus later, I still feel like there's some records I don't compress vocals at all. And some I've got three parallel chains and I'm going nuts on them. So, yeah. but I'm curious, like, so what's your take on it as a more of a production thing? I mean, in the case of Matt, like, that's how he sounded an origin of symmetry. And when I started working with him, that was the that was the bar we had to reach. I loved that album, I still do. And that was his, he had a very aggressive, distorted uh, vocal sound. Um, and I just continued down that path, you know. I do would compress him quite a lot. There's a lot of distortion just blowing up like a 1073 on, uh, on some of the early stuff we did together. And that's just, I mean, he, when he inhales, he does it in a loud fashion. That's something, <laughs> okay. you know, uh, that's kind of how he sounds. I mean, not so much nowadays, uh, but certainly, you know, he'd be excited and hitting it pretty hard there. And nowadays, obviously, you'd like go through and probably like duck it all out so it sounds nice and clean, you know. Um, they they did the Drones album with uh, but, um, uh, uh, Mutt Lang producing, and uh, those were some of the craziest uh, sessions I'd ever seen. Um, and this is not totally off topic because Mutt hates the sound of compression. So Mutt would automate EQs and level rides on everything. Sometimes he would have three different EQs automated on one thing just to constantly be dipping and riding frequencies so that he didn't have to have a lot of uh, compression to make something loud. Um, and I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, he would spend a month working on one song after it was recorded. Um, and, uh, you know, so there, there's a lot of different ways to do it, you know? Right. I mean, and on like the audio slave days, you just hit like four and 12 on 1176 and just smash it and you're good to go, you know? Yep. <laughs> um, but, uh, well, and as, yeah, a, I mean, as a production technique, would you, um, do you track with more than one vocal mic? Do you take like a bullet or something else or 57 sitting next to the something and treat them? Or is it all after the fact, just get a good vocal down? 
No, I would definitely change mics up. There would be like one mic normally for lead vocals, mostly, unless there was uh, something that's wildly out of character. And then for BVs, I always try to switch up. Yeah. Like, you know, sometimes like on the last Death Cab album, we would use like a lot of cheap handheld things to layer in underneath some really expensive mics. And, and I think that's a great sound. You know, there's loose talk about making a plug-in series uh, with somebody about some mics that will do some modeling that will do exactly that thing. Right. Yeah, I think I've usually, whenever you, whenever you have time and you do like a mic shootout and you're like, ooh, that's the lead vocal mic. Whatever was second, that's the background vocal mic because it's going to be <laughs> a different character. And yeah, we did yeah. that on Chili Peppers a lot, like uh, C37As for all the background vocals because there's wow. just such a different character to the SM7 that's big and open and, you know, right in your face. So yeah, yeah 57s, 58s, definitely. Yep, those are always good. Always good. Um and same goes awesome. for a lot of stuff, you know, you try to change it up a little bit, but okay, yeah. Oh, um, okay, so one more for both of you. Um, this is from uh, Miko, and Miko asks, I'd love to hear about the drums on the first Audio Slave record, uh, mixing-wise from Rich and tracking-wise from Andrew. Well, we can start with the tracking. So first of all, Dave Schiffman recorded that record, um, and it was in Studio 2 at East West, which anyway whatever it's studio two it's the back room no it is two yes three is the pet sounds room so first of all it's one of the best sounding rock drum rooms ever that and sound city a i think are my two favorite drum rooms you put any microphone anywhere and it just sounds great and there's a really good impulse response of that room in altiverb it's obviously not like tracking in the room but you get a feel for it and dave did an amazing job tracking that record um it's bell brass snare and they had a drum tech who actually had a nervous breakdown at the end of the record because of tuning the snare drum because it's the the drum is so heavy and brad plays so hard that they were going through heads maybe two takes per head wow, but it that. had to be wow. tuned perfectly because <laughs> it would just sing when it was right and it was completely clamped down if it wasn't right so that was a big deal but brad is obviously an amazing drummer gets great tone while hitting about as hard as anybody i've ever seen but dave schiffman uh that was all recorded to tape and then transferred that was back when uh, basf gave you a free cd in each reel of tape you got a, a writable cd but they gave you coupons for it so we just took a picture in front of the tape library and it was 220 something reels of two inch for that record and anyway but yeah so no i'd say there's no drum editing on that record there's lots of edits between takes to put the songs together just because they played the song so much because things were evolving um but yeah no editing at all and then it got put from the tape into pro tools to do those edits and then it went to rich and then it went i mixed it from tape it went back to tape yeah, well, we made, yes, we made new tapes when Chris started singing. And I guess those yeah. stayed as the, the master reels for that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, so, you know, um, that we mixed that from tape. And as far as the drums go, I do remember, like, on Renegades, uh, in keeping with my always trying out different things, um, I have a, there's a 909 kick sample underneath Brad's kick on the entire album of Renegades. Um, which is not something that most people would do on a Rage Against the Machine record. Um, and he afterwards said he loved that sound. So when we were mixing Audio Slave, I did the same thing. Um, so other than that, 
I don't think there's any snare samples or anything on there. There's just no, a but didn't, bit of, didn't you have the snare going through a Marshall? Oh yeah, I used to do this thing all the time where I would take uh, an Oritone and put it on top of a, I think this is a Bruce Swedean trick. You put it on top of a, you, you put two drumsticks over snare drum, put an Oritone on top of it so it's not resting on top of the head exactly. And then you would just feed the snare. Sometimes you would take a snare trigger and feed that into there. And, that, and then you'd mic underneath the snare and you'd get like a really fresh, lively snare sound. And I would use that. I wouldn't use a snare sample, but I would use the sample feeding into the live snare um, and, uh, and mix that back in. Yeah, for sure, I did that on, that on that record. So that's something that probably made a big difference. I don't remember like, we all did, all the Rick crew, we did this one thing where we would take the kick in the snare and run an 1176 parallel off of it. You know, Schiffman always did that, I'm sure we all did. Um, and that would be like a sort of center drum park of the kick and the snare. And then the rest of it would be, I don't even remember if I compressed the drums that much at all. All I must have done on a channel on the console, but it was mostly just that the 1176, I think that really makes it, gives it that kind of hammered sound. Awesome. Incredible answers there. <laughs> um, Okay, so uh, next question comes from uh, Eric, and he says, this is for Rich, I'm a big fan of your guitar sounds, especially Muse Too Many Stories. How did you capture that on the edge of breakup sound and still keep it full, loud, and aggressive? Yeah, so he's referring to that album, uh, Too Many Stories by Mew. Um, the, uh, their guitar sound is always fantastic, I think, on every record. Um, with those guys, we mostly use this amp called an Overbuilt, which was one of the guys that started Matchless left and started his own company. Um, we used that on the Fringers album and the band bought a bunch of them and they used them ever since. And I'm pretty sure on that album, we used them as well. Uh, it would just take a long time to get a sound together. You know, They did an album with Michael Beinhorn um, right before that. And uh, Bo, the guitar player in the band said that Beinhorn spent seven days getting the guitar sound together. Yeah, everybody looks fast after Beinhorn. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But he it, he got an incredible guitar tone on that yeah. album. You know? Yeah, um, the results are always there, but it's it takes time. <laughs> so yeah, I don't I don't think there was anything that particular other than we got we would spend time dialing the, the the sound of the amp, and you just spend a long time moving mics. I sometimes do the white noise thing where you send white noise into the amp, you go in front of it with headphones on, uh, and turn it up loud. Usually, I have earplugs and headphones. And then you slowly, you feed the sound of the white noise into the, coming out of the amp, into the microphone, back in your headphones, and you slowly move the mic around until you get the frequency sweet spot. Uh, I, for sure I did that on that album. Um, and then you would, you would do like your first mic, whatever that might have been, and then you add in a second mic, and then you can also check the phase cancellation using the white noise. You flip them out of phase and you try to move the mic until they cancel out as best as possible. And that way you get like a really punchy sound, uh, even though you're using multiple mics. Awesome. Good trick. Cool. Um, okay. Uh, next one is also from Eric. And he says, all of my favorite albums that you've mixed or produced have a great blend of in-your-face and lush soundscapes. Uh, he names a bunch of records like Francis the Mew, Blood Mountain, Silent Alarm, uh, No More Stories. And he says, uh, what's your typical approach to creating these types of sound environments? And are you bringing these ideas to the mixes? Uh, he also says Rory's, Rory's friend from Boston. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I don't, you just do what you like. I mean, I don't, you know, my favorite, I remember like at one point in high school, like 
one of my favorite records was like Black Sabbath's first album, and another one was like, uh, you know, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which are two albums that don't sound anything like each other. So probably my whole life I've been trying to put those two records on at the same time. Um, and the Sabbath and, record is more lush than <laughs> My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, probably. <laughs> well, true, yeah. Yeah, a lot of reverb on there. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, it's, you just, it's just what I like to hear, I guess. I don't know. I mean, obviously, if, you, if you're thinking of it spatially, you have like some, you want something kind of in focus and in the front of the frame, and then you sort of like fill out the rest of it and in the same way like you're shooting a film or something like that, you know? I, record making and making films, I've never made a film. I watch them like most people. And I imagine that the process is kind of similar um, and that you, there's a certain amount of reality and a certain amount of suspension of reality that you're interested in depending upon the genre of music, depending upon the kind of film. Right. Awesome. Cool. Uh, any tips for some of the um, creating depth kind of things on there with soundscapes? Um, I mean, you just use effects and don't EQ things quite so much and don't compress them as much and they'll sort of fade into the background, I would say, you know, leave those things maybe kind of natural and and uh, and don't do anything to, to push them forward. If that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, okay, our next one is um, from Peter Finley. And he says, hi, Rich, on drones. There's so much bass and kick punch coming up the middle. Uh, it sounds killer. What are your tips for getting that punch in fatness? Uh, uh, on drones, I might I can't remember if we were on a lot of albums for years. Andrew might have done this as well, is there's a DBX subharmonic generator um, that I would use as a parallel. I'm pretty sure I had that in drones. I, I used to use that a lot on Audioslave. I was using that and Absolution that whole period. And I stopped for a long time. I think if I remember correctly, I got another one and brought it back for the drones album. So there's, it basically, it, and the, it, the hardware version sounds completely different to any plugin. Just, uh, nothing else sounds quite like it. Um, and you just like feed a parallel and you just sort of sneak it in until your pants are flapping and then you're in a good spot. <laughs> you're always in a good spot if your pants are flapping. <laughs> like that's the quote, that's the t-shirt, you know? It's good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, reminds, I, well, it's in. I should grab that this afternoon. Yep. <laughs> oh no, sorry. Um, the uh, the next question is actually kind of similar to that, and that's what's your approach to capturing and presenting low end? Uh, you always have big, deep kick drums, and uh, they never get lost in the mix. I mean, I I mostly listen to hip hop music, so maybe that's part of why I'm interested in that area. Um, uh, the um, to me, I just don't compress the bottom end that much. You try to like focus it so it's not wide in a stereo fashion. And then I just don't step on it real hard and it seems to find room. I do find that a lot of sessions I get in as a mixer, sometimes people go a little crazy with the plugins. Uh, you don't need to do that. You don't need to just, there's room to add plugins. You don't have to do that. You can just leave it alone. It probably <laughs> sounds fine. I mean, one of the things that Rick used to do when you're mixing, when I've been mixing with him, this happened on like, People talk about Audio Slave a lot. There was a Like a Stone, that song. When I was doing a mix of it, I'd go up to his house and he was never in the studio and I'm mixing and he didn't always know what was on, what the overdub situation was. And I, I think I played him two or three mixes and he hated all of them. And uh, so then he had to actually huff it down to the studio because um, he felt like something was getting lost in the arrangement and he didn't know what it was. So he came down and he just said, unplug everything, turn everything off, start from the beginning. I'm like, okay. 
So then I got rid of all the compressors and whatever process was going on. And he pulled all the faders down. And then he like, that song starts with an acoustic guitar. So he like pulled the acoustic guitar up. He's like, that sounds good. And then he'd like pull up the kick and the snare. That sounds good. And he just went one by one. No, nope, not that, not that. And then in about 10 minutes, the song was pretty much done. Um, and then he left and I finished it off, but he sorted out the arrangement that quickly. So the ability to turn shit off and start all over again will save your ass more times than adding more shit. Awesome. Cool. Um, let's see. Uh, do you have any tips for um, really just finding a balance with your low end? Um, so how do you kind of know when that feels good? I mean, you'd want to be in a room that you're familiar with um, and check it on a few places and check it in the car if you have questions, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. It depends on the genre of music. Some Sometimes there can be too much low end and it slows down the track. Um, you know, there's a lot of really big rock albums uh, that are super thin in the bottom end. You know, there's like well, a couple of mixers. Metallica's, Metallica's catalog. You could say that, you know. But you know, to a point. That's an aesthetic choice of that band for sure. And there are, there are mixers who make that aesthetic choice for their clients day in and day out. Um, and uh, that, it's just a different kind of energy that you present on, on, the, on the music, you know? I mean, for me, I like, uh, I just spend a little more time thinking about that, I guess, you know? And a lot mm -hmm. of the music I'm attracted to, uh, that's an important part of the music. Right, awesome. Uh, a lot of people are asking about the boom boxes on your ex. Oh yeah. Um, I just love old boom boxes. I have a small collection of them. I mean, you know, I just, I don't use them for anything. I should. I think when I first started recollecting them, we tried listening through them for mixing and it just has no relevancy to anything whatsoever. Uh, so it's uh, totally pointless. But it's always fun on a camping trip to show up with a boombox <laughs> playing the go-go. No one's going to be mad about that. Yeah. Anything that runs yeah. on like 15 D-cell batteries. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, whole yeah. shelf just to get it running. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, some other questions about how do you know when you're done with a mix? Well, usually when someone else tells you that it's done, that's usually <laughs> when it's done. Well, um, to turn it around though, like if you're mixing and if you, you haven't been producing, so you're mixing someone else's production and the artist is not there, what gets you to the point of sending the first mix? Knowing you're gonna go back and forth and it won't be finished, but what makes you feel like it's time for other people to hear it? Yeah, that's a really good question because that's sometimes it's very hard, um, especially if it's a new uh, situation and you don't have a relationship yet. Um, you, I found that I do better if I like get to a point where I think it sounds good and then I don't send it and then I let it sit and germinate for a day or two. If you have time and you pull it up the next day and you might have a little bit of a different opinion about it or whatever. Um, um, yeah, you just have to get it to a point where you feel really excited about it. And sometimes um, that doesn't always work for certain artists, you know, like um, I did a bunch of stuff for Springsteen. And the interesting thing about Bruce is I kept thinking like, oh, it's Bruce Springsteen, I got to make it sound amazing. So I'm like putting it through the big tube, uh, you know, vocal compressor and making everything sound as big and as deep. And, and then like after doing this for a while, John Landau, his like longtime manager, producer, um, said basically he said uh i wish he told me this in the beginning he's like basically if it sounds expensive bruce isn't gonna like it i'm like oh shit <laughs> so like his aesthetic is all of, he kept saying make it sound greasy right so what he wanted is something that felt 
kind of almost like an old Stones record or something. Um, and it took a while to figure that out. For you know, because yeah. I thought it would sound awesome. Well, and especially because if you go through the catalog, I mean, there was that that run of stuff that Brendan did with them, and that doesn't sound greasy. That sounds Brendan big pumped, and but there's obviously something in the musical aesthetic that he connected to that has nothing to do with the Sonics. No, he doesn't listen to Sonics at all. It's so weird. You know, he definitely has a lot of opinions, um, and and uh, has like very specific feelings about small changes, but he doesn't get technical at all. Interesting. Awesome. Okay, uh, two questions about mid-range for you. Um, so the first one, I'll give you both the questions and then you can shape your answer that way. Um, so the first one is, please talk about the second Heimrecht album. Um, it's super inspiring and especially the mid-range. And then the other one is, how do you manage a crowd of uh, mid-range without thinning out sounds too much? Yeah, no, the second Heim album, that was, uh, we'll probably do like one more round of questions and I probably should bounce because I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, um, but uh, the, I'm really proud of the way that album sounds. It took a long time. They're really um, dogged in their pursuit of what it is that they want to say, uh, to put it mildly. And um, the, we, I mixed that through the Shadow Hill Summing box, which has a lot to do with the way the mid-range sounds on that album, for sure. That box has a, well, I also mixed the Drones album through that box. It has a very specific sound. Um, and uh, um, that album is super crowded in the mid-range and the, there's a ton of overdubs and they're all fighting for the same space. And there isn't really a good uh, answer for that other than you just spend a long time. We spent, I think, probably six weeks mixing that album. You spend a long time. There were a ton of revisions, um, you know, uh, the want you back that song which was the first single i think that was mix 33 that went to mastering um so it just goes on and you just stick with it you know you don't give up uh they certainly didn't um yeah. it just takes a long time it's no trick though <laughs> <laughs> so i think i think a little bit of what you were talking about before with the front and back thing i mean that is the way to do some of that is that things right. can be smaller and further away and you can actually turn them down at that point because they don't right. have to be right there so yeah that's true there's a certain amount of inferring you know the information can be inferred especially like once something makes an entrance then you can yeah. play back because your mind knows it's there it's fine yeah and that used to be a real thing i mean i remember when I was sort of learning, you know, late 80s, early 90s, that was a big deal. That really pushed something up in the entrance and then pull it back as far as you possibly could. And that was a sort of a technique. And yeah. I don't know, I haven't heard people really talk about that lately. So that is a thing. Present something and then you can really turn it down, especially percussion or extra guitar overdubs and things like that. Yep. Yeah, that was definitely a Rick move as well. Yeah, there are two big Rick moves that I've learned. I think everybody worked with them would learn it. One was that thing. You like push up the entrance of the shaker and then like let it sit back down because you don't want the shaker too loud. Yeah. And the other was your slippery fader move. Slippery fader, um, yep. Whole master bus up which on is the just downbeat. Bus in the uh in the chorus. Which yeah. I, now a lot of people do. But at the time I had never he when he first used that, that phrase to me, I was like, huh? What? Slippery fader? What are you talking about? You know? <laughs> it was something that had developed amongst his posse over years, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Sylvia, Sylvia loves talking about the slippery fader. That's the thing, you know. But it's a big deal. I mean, look, because otherwise you're just going to ride everything individually, and that's going to then hit the bus harder, and things will sound different. And sometimes you're hitting things so hard in the mix bus, you can't turn it up. It won't get louder, yeah. so turn the mix up, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Right. And then and then how do you get out of the slippery fader? Yeah, you just yeah. real slow. You just pop it up for the downbeat or, yeah, I don't know. And and now I kind of automate that. So I've, it's very controllable, but sometimes it's like the whole chorus just comes up 0.8 because that's the Ed Cherney number. You always do 0.8. And sometimes it's just at the beginning and then it'll fade down for the entire chorus. So you're left at the next verse level or whatever, but yeah, it's just different. I didn't know it was 0.8. I do like almost two. Well, like mix bus for me is usually point eight, but I, it just as the number came out of my mouth, I remember John Paterno was actually quoting him because that was Ed's number. Whenever he had to do anything with the vocal, it was always point eight. That was going to be perfect. <laughs> Learn something here. <laughs> awesome. Okay, uh, last question, and this is for both of you guys. Um, so, you guys, you've talked a lot about uh, Rick Rubin's camp. Um, just like quick answer, so uh, Rich can get going, but. Um, how many of you guys were in that in that group, and were you guys all pretty tight during that? This is a good question. Well, it's a moving group, first of all. I mean, I think I'm I was probably one of the sort of longest lasting because I think I was making records with him for about twelve years straight. Um, you are the you know lasting. still doing other stuff, but I mean, I sort of came in. Jim Scott was still there for a few years, and I was there, but then he was gone. So you cycle through people. We certainly all knew each other because Rick made a lot of records and a lot of the same people worked on them. Yeah, I would. If you go back though, historically, Rick has a long history of pulling out people, and and I don't know whether it's he's finding the right people or we all learn so much from him. It's probably a combination of both. But yeah. like he's the guy Andy who Wallace. started his career. Like yeah. Andy Wallace was doing disco records, and then he brought him in to do "Walk This Way" with Run DMC and uh, Aerosmith. And that led to using Andy for Slayer. Yeah. Um, and that led to Nirvana calling him up because they wanted the guy who mixed Slayer. And then um, Brendan O'Brien, same thing. Brendan O'Brien, same thing. Blood Sugar. Uh, yeah. Came in on Blood Sugar as an engineer. And then, uh, you know, his career obviously exploded. And then Sylvia and Schiffman. There's so many people that have gone through uh, the Rick camp. Uh, Dave Sardi obviously came through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously became a massive producer. Um, and yeah, I think and Greg Fiddleman has gone on to be massively successful. I know a lot of us did know each other. The only time we all, I remember when we were working with you two at Abbey Road, yeah. a few were actually all together at the same time hanging out. That was kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. The fact that there were three of us in a room. <laughs> but yeah, usually you would see each other like up at Rick's house on their way to doing something else or whatever. Yeah, but it was it was good. I mean, you know, there, there are pluses and minuses to absolutely everything, but obviously you got to work with the biggest artists on some of the biggest, like when, when the Audio Slave thing, and they didn't have a name, that was actually one of the best parts about making that record. We can end with this little thing. There was no band name. Audio Slave happened, I think it had happened by the time we were done tracking, but there was just a sea of post-it notes on the wall of possible band names and the joke ones were some of the funniest ever there was one with this dude in a raincoat with a huge dick and it was plato's surprise <laughs> and that was i thought george draculius's name for them was quite good cornello <laughs> cornello well, there's another one, George Draculius. I mean, Rick didn't bring him right. up, but they produced records together for years. That's right. Yeah, yeah. George, yeah, he's great. And now he's like a massive, there's like soundtracks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's so entertaining. Love George. Yeah. 
so it was a yeah it was an interesting place to be and then there's jason later who's like has a massive career i think he's still working with rick yeah yeah he's still doing stuff yeah dana nielsen now is doing a lot of rick's records really great yeah. Yeah, Philip Broussard, who worked with us on millions of records. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, the, one of the greatest guys to have in the room while you're making a record ever. Absolutely. Philip's the best. So yeah, a crew of really amazing people. And then there'd be people who would just sort of stop by, like Russ Elevato came in to mix the Saul Williams record because of the first D'Angelo record. And then mixed like a couple of things, then he came back years later to mix something else for Rick, but he wasn't, you know, sort of a regular um yeah so it was a hang on a second i have something that might be interesting um hang on a second i love things okay. that are interesting you guys need to have like a giant barbecue or something <laughs> after <laughs> or something just get all the recruiting done yeah we'll do it at rick's house and he'll pay and that'll be awesome <laughs> and then there are all the other people around like Lindsay chase who um rich mentioned early on who was his production uh, coordinator for years dave and jeff who worked with him i mean it just yeah an amazing group of people so this was the working i still have a copy of this i don't even know if this is, song has been released but this is a working this is what the band was called during the working wow. times yeah ratm chris cornell yeah and hide the gun there's another I one i don't remember that song at all but there was another one from the first record which didn't come out. There was some weird dissonant thing between the bass and the vocal melody that they could never sort out. And it was by far the coolest song on the record, I thought. Um, I can't remember the name of it now. It never came out. That sounds really familiar. Tim was complaining because he said, uh, because he now had to play like songs, um, that he couldn't do the kind of bass stuff he would normally do. <laughs> and I remember that coming up. He was really pissed about that song because like he didn't want to change his part. Um, and there was a bit of an issue about that. Yeah, and I thought, to me, it worked fine. It, you know. Yeah. But that's because I hear. I mean, look, just you, you said you wanted to know what was on uh, John Leckie's list. It just made me think of it. The very first thing was a Stockhausen piece. So oh it's. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I think we yeah. all, and that's another thing. I think, like you say, you know, you spend most of your time listening to hip hop and things. I think we all sort of get known for the records we've worked on as if that's our thing. And some of us are lucky enough to work in the genre that we love and that's what we want to do. And some people are really happy to not do that. You know, I mean, I, would you want to be making hip hop records for a living? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and there's some people there, like, I think Dave way is a great example of this, you know, Dave, um, yeah, cool. he, great, amazing producer, engineer, whatever, but he started off in the Atlanta hip hop scene. He did all Teddy Riley's stuff early on. And he had huge success with that. And then because of that, had huge success mi mixing super slick pop. Like, yeah. you know, mall, teeny bopper pop. And had an incredible career. And all he wanted to do is exactly what he's doing right now, which is the Americana Roots, huge Beatles fan, did Voice of the Canyon, all the music for that. So he's, um, it can take 20 years to get back to what you think you are musically sometimes. I feel like people... Um almost always want to do not necessarily what it is that they're good at for whatever reason, whether it's their, they, uh, it's, whether it's easy for them or whatever, you know, like John Bryan, we spoke a lot about this guy, John, I think more than anything else wants to be, or wanted for a long time to be like an Elvis Costello style, like really known 
as like a songwriter to, to you know have like a randy newman's career that's not his thing just it, that's not what he's he's a great songwriter but for whatever reason that's not what happened to him yeah uh, so you know i think everybody kind of there's always something else they kind of want to do yeah i don't feel sorry for him though he's doing he's done all right <laughs> no i'm really sorry for him no Oh, excellent. Rich, thank you so much. This has been amazing. It's just great to talk to you again, yeah. too. Yeah, it's, no, been it's a, good to catch up. It's been a while. And if we're ever yeah. allowed to travel at all, or if you decide to move to the English countryside, let me know, and we'll uh, have a distanced beer. That sounds good. Awesome. It was all a blast. Right. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. All right. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. See, everybody see you guys. Week. All right. See you. All right. Bye. Oh, that was great. Thanks so much for listening. And join me next week for episode 11 with the incomparable Greg Penny. If you don't know Greg Penny, you definitely will after next week, uh, including one of the best Elton John stories I've ever heard.